Hi, I'm Kyle. I'm Matt. And I'm Trevor. And welcome to Catching Up on Cinema. If you aren't familiar with the program, Catching Up on Cinema is a film analysis podcast wherein we introduce each other to films, broaden our cinematic horizons, and catch up on our cinema. Uh, so it is the month of January 2020. Uh, 2021, that is. <laughs> Caught myself there. And uh, we are in the midst of our video game movie month. Uh, last week, we covered Christoph Gans's Silent Hill from 2006. And this week, uh, we're going to go back in time a little bit towards the beginning of uh, video game adaptations on film and check out uh, Stephen E. D'Souza's Street Fighter from 1994. Uh, so in case you didn't notice during the intro there, we had three voices this time around. Um, Matt is my brother, and he occasionally pops up on the show, mostly for fantastic episodes. So, how you doing, Matt? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Although I really, really hate you guys for making me watch this movie again. Uh, it's I can't say anything positive about it. I've always hated this movie, so revisiting it now that I'm almost forty was like particularly sobering. But yeah, happy to talk about. It. Happy to join you. See, that's what's funny. It's like I did not see that coming because for me personally, I, I was in the room with you when we saw this together. Our parents rented it. We we didn't go to the theater. I think uh, at least I was too young anyway to see this. But we, we rented this film and the hype level was way the fuck up there. I think every video game magazine we had access to at that time was doing like whole like half issue spreads about it. And the hype train was a rolling and yeah, I remember on that first viewing, both you and I were just kind of like, "Wow, that was a movie." And then for me personally, I didn't, I didn't revisit this one until at least a decade after, like maybe not even on TV. But I'm kind of surprised to hear that you still hate it because I've actually come around and I kind of like it now. Well, I, I think this is where me being slightly older than you both actually makes the major difference because I think that. The letdown that I experienced that this has traumatized me and you know trauma that you can only experience when you grow up with immense amount of privilege in your life but uh it's really like I've held on to like how disappointed I felt like going from reading it buying into all the hype and going from you know experiencing this as just a loud ass video game that you would see at arcades and then laundromats and wherever else around town Eventually, you start pumping quarters into it and get really immersed in the world, start picking up anything you can find on it. Like, this is before internet. This is before, like, you could really see anything on TV about video games. Like, the only way you were going to get into it was to talk to either other people into video games, be it on the playground, be it, you know, at the 7-Eleven where there was an actual cabinet, be it an arcade itself, or you, you read the gamer mags. And like you said, like this, everything leading up to this, we were being told this is going to be amazing. This is everything you want to see. You know, you got Jean-Claude Van Damme pretty much at the peak of, you know, his career from a, being a grade school kid point of view. Like he was probably starting to slip in terms of the actual national eye. And then, you know, you get all of that and then you go into the theater and you realize it's 100 percent just a total cash grab. And it yeah, it still bothers me. So in that case, I guess uh, this is your equivalent of my uh, Godzilla 1998. <laughs> it's like, and I think that's fitting, being as we're four years apart in age, and this was four years earlier than Godzilla 1998. But um, I figure like one of the first things we should talk about, um, and we've already kind of touched on it here, um, is all of our like 
early experiences with this film and this franchise, I guess. Like what, how we're connected to Street Fighter on an individual level. So Kyle, being as we haven't heard from you in a minute here, um, uh, Kyle, what, what, what is your connection to the Street Fighter franchise and I guess this film specifically? I think I can probably get this in under uh, 15 seconds. Uh, <laughs> I played this one time, this video game, uh, one of the Street Fighters when I was about, oh, eight or nine for like three minutes uh it's too hard for me didn't want to play it and then i watched this movie for the very first time uh yesterday on uh on an airplane so that's my extent of street fighter knowledge okay well you know maybe that airplane viewing contributes to uh, your your positive review of it because i mean there airplane movies are a, are a separate subgenre of film <laughs> like there are there are movies that do much better when you're con- in a confined space with nothing yeah. else available to you i'm sorry let me be let me be clear i actually watched i watched street fighter in the airport because i had a three-hour layover that i was unaware of uh, and then I watched any given Sunday on the actual flight. So, so, you, so you watch Street Fighter in in your lap and or take while taking a shit. <laughs> <laughs> Seems fitting, actually. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, Matt, I don't know if you had any more details to share about that, but um, so you and I both saw this movie at home after being like immersed in the hype surrounding it, but. What would you say your background is with the the video game franchise? I mean, it was one of the first games I really got into um, in an arcade. Like arcades were huge when I was a kid. Um, I think you both experienced them too. But we did, it, yeah, yeah. But like, they were like a big thing in the sense that like we could actually go and like there were dedicated places only that had video game machines and and fighting games. This was like the first introduction to that whole genre. And the cool thing with fighting games is it forces you to play alongside strangers and, and people that you would just meet, you know, and you would kind of build up a reputation, even, even be it just for the day, if you could actually hold your own at that cabinet. You know, you could p- conceivably play all day on a quarter if you were good enough at a game. And hence, that's where the interest li- would lie in actually learning all the moves and stuff. So that's where it was kind of cool, where there wasn't the vast amount of information that we have now where all these special moves, all these things that had these intricate different patterns you had to know how to use in the joystick, you had to learn those like by word of mouth. Like you had to kind of like nudge some guy in line waiting to play and be like, hey, how the hell do you do that? And like they'd tell you, it's like, oh, quarter circle this, whatever. Like, you know, and you'd have to commit this to memory and know which characters, how they do each moves. Like it was this whole weird like experience, very nerdy, but like when you do that in our arcade for multiple times like you know and you, you're actually good at enough to beat some people like it sticks with you so like th- hence that's why i think i delved so much into this game and got so excited and it helped that the port to the super nintendo is one of the best ports from an arcade i would say in terms of just like pretty much taking this thing no- nobody thought you could ever experience on a home console and and replicating it in a very great fashion so and I think that's where Trevor got to experience it more. But Yeah, uh, the arcade experience, um, I certainly grew up playing in arcades as well, um, but not to the extent that you did. Um, but actually, I think it's really neat that you, you nailed down something that always stuck out to me about like the kinds of games that I would gravitate towards in the arcade. And it was the ones that you had to have some measure of skill to extend the length of your quarter. 
Um, because I always found that like kind of a, a fun process where it's like, oh, you mean if I do well at the game, I get to play more of it? As opposed to like a, say, like a ticket machine at like one of those like carnivals or arcades that, you know, spits out tickets. You, you put in your money, it gives you your reward, you move on. Um, but like if I play something like Metal Slug or Street Fighter or something, I get to play as, be, until I die. And if I don't die for a half hour, well, it's my machine until then. So I'm renting the machine uh, for 25 cents or whatever. And it was a great incentive to develop skill. And especially at like a, you know, a developmental age, like if you get that, that taste of like reward in the form of, you know, defeating a stranger, <laughs> like at a game that you had to pay money to play. Uh, yeah, that does stick with you. And it does incentivize you to, to, you know, apply your craft and get better at it. And I don't know what it is about fighting games. I'm no good at them anymore. But when, like, up until I was about a teenager, um, it was kind of a genre that I spent a lot of time with, uh, playing with my friends and stuff. And it, um, I don't know, it, be, it became, like, a huge part of my gaming experience for the first half of my life. Um, and in the case of Street Fighter Two, I... I think almost all of it had to do with the characters. Like that that was the that was the huge thing that separated it from the the rest of the the other pretenders that would come out in later years. Um that's not entirely true. I mean the characters were fantastic, but um on a pure mechanical level, Street Fighter Two was just like head and shoulders above most of the competition. Like even compared to Street Fighter One, that game is busted to shit. There's a reason nobody talks about it. It's barely a game. <laughs> it's really fucking bad. Um, but Street Fighter Two, like mechanically, it it. I mean, to to quote the Fallout seventy six press conference or whatever, it just works. <laughs> I know that's a, a triggering phrase for a lot of uh, like hardcore gamers and stuff, but like as compared to a lot of contemporary like early nineties like competitive fighting games and whatnot, it it just functions so much better and so much cleaner than most of the other stuff even like the snk stuff that would actually be made by a lot of the people who worked on the original street fighter like fatal fury like oh my god the inputs like you had to like kind of like put your hands underwater like you had to do everything very slowly and deliberately and just so to just to get a fucking power wave or a crack shoot to come out whereas like a hadoken or a sonic boom just if you know the motion, it comes out clean, and it was so rewarding. It felt so good. But at the end of the day, it's the it's the characters, and I think that's something we're going to get into when we actually get to talking about this film. Um, so that kind of establishes our, our like familiarity with the franchise, like in the early goings. But like Matt, did you did you keep up with Street Fighter as it as it wore on? Because it's it's still it's still an active franchise. <laughs> Um, no, I, I played the third one a little bit, and the third one made a, a, I would say the second one, part of what made it so great, too, was it was accessible, like, in all its iterations, like, all of those, like, for the most part, anybody could kind of just pick up and fake their way through being relatively competent at it. The third one put in measures to pretty much cut that off completely. Like, unless you had actual talent, you weren't going to enjoy the third one. Um, that's when I kind of lost interest because it also with things like the internet and actually like experiencing what very good people are, are at games on the, it, it just reminded me like that. It's like, okay, like there are people who are hundred percent committed to being excellent at this and I'm not one of them. So 
I, I've fallen off since. I've recently played the fifth one, um, and I was not very impressed. I, I do not like the direction it's gone. Um, I get why it is, because you know, now it's all about microtransactions and how you can get the most bang for your buck with you know a fighting game like that. So I, I'm not going to fault them, but um, no, I, I don't enjoy uh, Street Fighter as much as I used to. Yeah, I, I think that's the, the story for both of us then, that <clears throat> fighting games were a lot more meaningful pre-internet, <laughs> and then people started making tier lists and, you know, perfecting, like, frame-perfect combos and, like, hitboxes and all that nonsense. As soon as the, the lingo became mainstream, and it is mainstream in most gaming circles now, like footsies, if I say footsies, I'm sure there's somebody who plays games that's listening to the show who knows exactly what I'm talking about. As soon as that shit became mainstream, yep, there goes the casuals. Like, everybody's fucked now <laughs> because there are no more casuals. Everybody's pretty fucking hardcore now. Um, but yeah, my, for me personally, uh, Alpha was always was and probably will forever be my favorite iteration of Street Fighter. Four can suck my dick. Five can suck my dick, too. Three, I think it's really fitting that uh, the soundtrack, at least for Third Strike, the third iteration of it, is like a... It's like hip-hop jazz. I think that's so fitting because that game basically is that. It's so fucking niche, especially today. Mm -hmm. um, but in my eyes, it's like it should be considered like one of the prestige fighting games where it's like, oh, man. like It's, it's, like, it's like that uh, musician that nobody, unless they're like in the community, knows their name. It's like, oh, <laughs> that's that guy. It's like, oh, that guy plays Street Fighter Three. He's hardcore. <laughs> but like, you know, the, the casuals and like especially the young kids these days probably don't give two shits about but for me that's like one of the most fun ones to watch yes i mean that that's fair but kyle <laughs> yeah. i'm dying to know like how many van damme movies have you experienced now because i know uh, you're kind of late to the the van damme party one street fighter Really? <laughs> Holy shit, dude. This was the yeah, introduction no. so, on Claude Van Damme. Yeah, so this is actually, this might be a good segue. See, I was, uh, we were an Arnie household. It was all Arnold. Anything Arnold did, that's what we watched. I've, I think I've seen maybe two Sylvester Stallone movies. That includes the 2008 Rambo. Uh, I haven't even seen, I saw the first Rambo and then that. I think that's the extent of my, like, Sylvester Stallone uh, I've seen a couple of... I actually think I've seen more Steven Seagal movies than I have uh, Van Damme and um, Sylvester Stallone combined. Uh, but yeah, this is my first actual watching Van Damme movie all the way through. I've seen Pieces of Kickboxer. Is that is that where he dances in the bar with the yeah, ladies? Yeah, saw yeah. that. saw that scene. And then I saw the opening scene of Hard Target. I think that's the only other thing I've seen of his. Wow, you picked a terrible one <laughs> in terms of showcasing what he's about because this is very much an ensemble piece like he his if you look at the poster for this movie he was a huge part of the marketing and he's framed as the protagonist um, but in terms of screen time it's pretty spread out so you don't really get a good showcase for him um, but I think the timing of the release of this movie is really fascinating um, so let, let's put let's put Van Damme under a magnifying glass for just a second because this came out in 1994, and rumors suggest that uh, he declined to be in the Mortal Kombat movie, which would come out the following year. Thank God. And the rumors indicate that the reason for that was because he was supposed to be playing Johnny Cage, uh, 
And in fact, Mortal Kombat, the game, began life as a Van Damme vehicle. Like, the entire game was supposed to be based around Van Damme being in in the, you know, recording sessions to produce the graphics for the game and having him big as life and twice as ugly all over the marketing for it. Uh, he pulled out of that. And, uh, again, rumor, a little bit of hearsay, but uh, most sources seem to indicate that the reason he didn't want to be Johnny Cage in the movie was because the character was supposed to be a parody of him. And being as it was 1990s Van Damme, and he was well known to have kind of an inflated ego at this point in time, he seems to have gotten over that um, with really stunning results. He's a, he's a very humble and funny man these days, i got to say. But in the 90s, oh shit, he was a different person altogether. Um, action stars in general were very big-headed and kind of oafish. Like, they were pretty awful people. Is he the Marlon Brando of action of action stars, or is that the crown rest on Steven Seagal's sweating head? That would be Seagal. He claims that title, like, he stands on the top of the hill, but, you know, Van Damme's just a step below that. Stallone, uh, a few years earlier, anyway, like in the 70s and the 80s, certainly fit that category, but as far as 90s go, oh yeah. Seagal holds the title. <laughs> for, it's like, yeah, I think I want to be a floating suitcase. Yeah, that's Superman's dad. <laughs> like, yeah, I think I should be a talking donut. Yeah, that's Superman's dad. It's like, oh my God, Brando, fuck you. But Excellent Val um, Kilmer impression, by the way. <laughs> but um, what, I, what I wanted to focus on about 1994, though, is that, like I said, Van Damme turned down Mortal Kombat, which would you know go on to be looked upon as... And we've talked about this literally for three hours on the fucking show. Look it up. Um, it's the number one video game adaptation. Um, in my eyes, anyway. I can't really think of one that does it better. Um, maybe on a pure aesthetic level, Silent Hill does it better. But in terms of just overall entertainment and adherence to the source material, Mortal Kombat's probably your winner. Um, so he dips out of Mortal Kombat. He does this instead. The movie is fairly successful, but not critically. Not by, <laughs> <laughs> not by a long shot. You don't say. <laughs> <laughs> but the interesting thing is Time Cop came out the same year. And Time Cop is the most lucrative film Van Damme has ever made. So this year was a very like very uh, bipolar experience. And uh, I use that word very carefully, being as I think the man actually suffers from that. Um, in terms of like his box office and critical reception. Uh, so he had his biggest hit ever, and then this big, loud movie that made money, but nobody really liked it when it came out. I was going to say, like, kind of rewinding a bit, but, like, when you're talking about, like, the art house nature of Street Fighter Three, like, Van Damme, like, kind of has had that reemergence now, and a big part of that was because of JCVD, which was a very niche art house type movie uh, released, you know, what, within the last 10 years um that's that's why i was curious kyle if you've actually if you had seen that one because one of the high points of that film is there's a sequence where it's a long shot just focused on van damme and and the character he plays in it is essentially himself but pretty much it's like a fictionalized version of himself but uh and it's just this 100 percent like ad-lib monologue he gives where he just pretty much in his own native tongue lists off like all his regrets and how he's he realizes now that he's older that he's squandered a lot that he could have achieved in his life and that he's just has all these you know things that he's regrets or wishes he could do differently 
and it, it's an amazing long shot that just like follows him the whole time like and it's it was like a one take type thing and when I see that, all I think of is this movie. <laughs> like, because it is so obvious that he's just so coked out and so indifferent to anything that's going on the whole entire time. It's just like, Jesus. I, I'm sorry that this was your first real full Van Damme movie because like, this is just such a travesty well, compared to some of his other body of work. Well, what makes this movie fun for me uh, is that nobody's really phoning it in i feel like everybody like all the actors are actually trying and it comes off really goofy but they're all actually really trying except for uh the doctor he might he might not give a shit the guy making the blanca uh dude he was in gandhi he's yeah. above this yeah I was gonna say, he's above this everybody <laughs> yeah. else is pretty much engaged like kylie minogue is like really engaged in it she sheds tears she actually she was actual probably tears. the best actor i would say in this one <laughs> I miss mean, I mean, she shed a tear. <laughs> she she puts that. way more effort than's oh. necessary to all of her lines. I'll say that. <laughs> you can see Jeez. Van Damme at the very end of the movie. He like comes out of the smoke and he's like, "Holy shit!" <laughs> like she, was, this woman is crying. <laughs> like, nobody said no. Nobody said people were gonna try that hard when they're standing next to me, the star. I, I was in my phone at that point. I'm like, "Okay, this is wrapping up. All right." Well, I mean, Raul made his exit. You can you can go home by then. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> he, on the other hand, is why? Why is he so awesome? Even in this. Yeah, I I, I don't know. Do you let Let's start talking about the cast, I guess. So uh, before we get into the cast, because this is probably going to be the majority of this conversation, is just taking a look at the actors and the characters they're playing because we have 16 characters uh, available to us in the Street Fighter <laughs> franchise at this point in time and I feel out of respect maybe say a little something about each of them of course we'll start with the two big ones but um, just a little background on the production itself um, before we get to the cast um, so I mentioned up top directed by Stephen E. D'Souza um, not a household name by any means however I think it's very fitting um, that he actually was the writer of a film we covered only a few short weeks ago, and that would be Die Hard, um, as well as Die Hard 2, and he's worked on uh, Arnold's filmography, uh, your Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, he did Commando and The Running Man, um, and then he did a whole bunch of shit. <laughs> <laughs> like, he was uh, he, Judge Dredd, too, wasn't he? Yes, he was Judge Dredd. The 90s were not kind to him, much like Sylvester Stallone and Judge Dredd. The 90s were not kind to either of these men. Um, the big one that jumps out at me, though, is the very top of the 90s. Hudson fucking Hawk. Um, is that, that mo- Bruce Kyle's Willis? making a face. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I haven't seen that. I, I know its reputation, yeah. Danny Aiello yeah. and Bruce Willis. That movie is shit. Um, I, I, I actually bought it for a couple of dollars at, like, a bargain bin on the, in the U District. Um, just out of, like morbid curiosity i'm that way i'm a little bit masochistic when it comes to my my movie viewing experiences if i hear so much shit about something i just have to see it like i I watched fantastic a few months ago just because i needed to know what the fuck went wrong with it hold (laughs) hold that urge for wonder woman 84 you don't need to do it i don't know kyle i got that itch Uh, (laughs) you're gonna regret it 
So, like, complete. Let's completely derail the conversation then, because Kyle, Kyle was sending me paragraphs ab- about this movie. <laughs> <laughs> he and he referred to Street Fighter as like an utter joy, as compared to Wonder Woman eighty four. What the fuck is the deal with this movie? Because every every YouTuber or podcast I listen to is just shitting all over this fucking movie what what is wrong with it kyle honestly i need a second viewing to really understand why it's so bad like while watching you're like this is the way it's put together the way it's like the way we transition nothing's explained uh it's the plot is stupid just everything about it's bad and i never realized that gal gadot is like an awful actress you you like you she came on the screen in the first one. You're like, oh my gosh, she's she's dreamy. <laughs> like, I, I'm just gonna watch this movie with her in it. Then you watch the second one after you've seen her before. You're like, oh, she's not good at all. And this movie's terrible. Yeah, it, I'd I'd have to watch it again to pinpoint exactly what makes it awful. But it's just bad. I'm getting flashbacks of eight millimeter of Nicolas Cage running around yelling, "I'm trying to understand." I'm just trying to understand. <laughs> yeah, I. But- Plenty, like plenty of people have commented on it, and you don't need to we're, watch it. You can like, just folk, folks at home. We're not going to be doing an episode on it. I just Mm-mm. thought it was funny that like Kyle sent me a random text out of nowhere saying like Street Fighter is so much better, so than much Wonder better. Eighty four. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> considering the budget between the two of them, yikes. Yeah, for real. I think this was thirty five million. Jesus, <laughs> like no wonder it made. Well, it helps when you film in Thailand and Australia. Like, I'll say that much. But um, rolling it back real quick to the director, the only thing I really wanted to say about the making of it was that it's actually kind of an amazing story. Um, Capcom, uh, like Capcom, the the folks, the the Japanese company that uh, produced the games in the Street Fighter series, uh, they were in talks with a lot of American movie studios uh, to make a Street Fighter film, and apparently nobody was making them happy. Like, they talked to all, all the big names, all the big producers, all the big writers, Nobody could give them what they wanted. And uh, this Mr. Stephen E. D'Souza, apparently he knew the games from playing them with his son. And uh, he was brought in by, I think it was some guy that produced the Doors uh, music career. (laughs) Uh, He was just brought in and he was told, you have 24 hours to write a treatment. And he did it. And apparently it worked for (laughs) for the Capcom executives. And uh, he was allowed to... uh, provide the script but he also came back with like a counter argument saying like hey uh being as i got you this in like 24 hours can i direct it as well in fact i think he said i'm not going to do it unless you let me direct it and they let him do it and uh you know it could have been a lot worse say that much but um in terms of his like ups and downs um he's a very kind of like a hit and miss guy but he 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 does have some pretty big hits on his on his career though that's for sure but Matt, it looked like you had something uh, you wanted to say there. Well, I was just going to say, like, could we make the argument that Wonder Woman '84 and this movie exist for essentially the same purpose? Like, in that there's almost no soul to it. It's a hundred percent just a production made to cash in on a popular figure, and you know you don't care about any contribution whatsoever to the lore or like how it's going to be ingrained. It's just. How do we maximize what we're profiting off of this thing that is in the public eye currently? I mean, you could say that, although I've heard some rumors about uh, what went down with Wonder Woman 84. I mean, anytime you're looking at like a, a, a major superhero franchise property, like 
I, I call it housekeeping, where there's there's certain movies that exist purely to like reshuffle the board a little bit, like provide scaffolding for future products to come. Um, from what I understand, Wonder Woman eighty four actually was rejiggered to not do that, um, which tells you the state of Warner Brothers. Maybe they're hitting the panic button a little bit and shelving a lot of projects that you would have expected to be already done by now, like say like Aquaman two and that Black Adam movie that's been in the works for a decade. <laughs> um, but I get what you mean, though. It's like franchise management, the movie, where Street Fighter, the movie, uh, we'll certainly get into this uh, at some point. Like, You can tell that the idea was we're going to break into the American market, not just through video games. We're going to create a, a new type of Street Fighter media franchise that has like all sorts of cross-promotional uh opportunities for us in the form of like toys and merchandise and stuff like that stuff that can like line the shelves of american stores and whatnot and as evidenced by putting you know the american character as portrayed by a belgian (laughs) uh, front and center on the poster as opposed to the characters that um, are generally thought of as the protagonists of the whole series like even up to street fighter (laughs) five it's like (laughs) but Anyway, uh, we should probably get to the characters, because I don't have a whole lot more to say about the director. He seems competent. Um, I did listen to the commentary for this, although it's very disappointing because he recorded it, I think he said, like, five or six months after the movie was completed and released, which is not when you want to do a commentary, because you're still kind of in promotional mode. You can't talk shit about your baby when it's it's a baby like you got to see the baby (laughs) like there's no ugly babies you can't you can't do that but like if you record a commentary say like years after the fact like say conan the barbarian (laughs) then you get some really fun stories where it's like wow both of these people are super far removed from the production and they can talk candidly about it but this guy was obviously still kind of like in the mode where i better not talk shit otherwise capcom will drop the hammer or whatever (laughs) um so it, it was filled with some fun anecdotes but not a whole lot of like deep insight and um for what it's worth he doesn't once mention uh van damme being difficult on the set or having a serious coke problem which um should have been like every minute of that commentary truthfully speaking but like i said uh, he recorded it a few months after they finished it so um i guess let's uh, start with the the big man like anybody have anything in particular they want to single out about van damme as uh, Colonel William Guile. Um, that's actually something I want to get into because uh, I think it's very interesting that uh, a lot of the cast of Street Fighter, the games, um, they're like Cher or Madonna or Leon, aka Madonna's bro- like boyfriend who was popular in the 90s. Cool Runnings, Kyle. <laughs> uh, Darice from uh, Cool Runnings. <laughs> Kyle doesn't know what I'm talking about. Okay. Nah, well, lost me. Anyway. <laughs> Anyway, a lot of the characters in Street Fighter don't have surnames. It's just like Blanca. That's it. <laughs> there's no last name. It's just Blanca. Um, but in this movie, there's a handful of characters that are given first and last names. And as far as I understand, that did not extend beyond this film. Like like Guile. As far as I know, he's always been Major Guile. But in this, he's Colonel William Guile. Got a promotion. Oh, Bill Guile. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> that has a, that has no ring to it whatsoever, but thanks. But um, what did y'all think of Van Dam as a uh, as Guile? 
Um, I hated that he had red hair. I hated that <laughs> it was obviously a Belgian playing, uh, you know, supposedly the most American person of all time, based on the character, Guile. Um, I hated the fact that Guile himself in the arcades, like, is kind of a, just really, he's probably the least amount of effort was put forth to conceiving that character. Like, they literally just slapped an American flag on the guy's bicep and were like, that's all you need to know about him. And that's pretty much how he's existed in that universe, <laughs> minus a small little backstory about his, his co-pilot or, or buddy, Charlie. But, um, Carlos? But yeah, Carlos. yeah, Carlos in this one. <laughs> um, what One thing that jumped out to me watching it now is... Um, the delivery of the lines, I feel like the way the director D'Souza wrote it is the tone of Bruce Willis and Die Hard. But the way that Van Damme delivers the lines is so comically like off that it just there's zero impact on any of the, the bits he, he puts out. So that really like threw me off watching it this time. See, I went in with the, uh, I was reading the IMDb trivia about Van Damme on this production, so when I know that he was, you know, kind of not giving it 110, uh, I could kind of see it seeping out in his cap. Like, he doesn't give a shit about this. He's like, okay, what do I have to say? Uh, and then flex real quick. Um, yeah, it was kind of on par with, what, Johnny Depp and Pirates 5 with the, with the earpiece, uh, be, like his lines being fed to him like oh, on yeah. the spot pretty much. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, he he did not show up to play for this one. It, like he certainly got it done, but you could tell he wasn't really in it. Um, I don't know how much he was paid. Probably quite handsomely. Is it weird that I know Van Damme's like arm? Like whenever he flexes, I know that's his arm from his movies because he has a very he has a very unique defined arm. And I notice it. I notice that he does the flex when he does the, yeah, <laughs> I got a message for you. <laughs> Doesn't he? Uh, that's the, the character who does it in the hospital to Chun-Li. He's like, I'm going to take care of it for you. <laughs> What's with the flex? I don't understand I mean, that. He is all that is American, Kyle. That's what Americans do. <laughs> oh, you need to remember, this is a American and Japanese co-production. There's certain eccentricities that are going to bubble to the surface every I'm so, now and again. I'm sorry. <laughs> the person that made that pose popular was Austrian. That's an Arnold pose. So, well, why do you think Van Damme does the outside? That's smart. That's his, that's that's his, his brand. That's his brand. That, yes. Like, folks at home, you can't see it, but I know exactly the, what Kyle's talking it's about. It's the because, Van Damme brand, yeah. Yeah, he knows his best angle, and it's facing out. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not the inside curl, it's the outside. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, yeah, Van Damme, you can tell he's kind of phoning it in a bit. Um, I mean, the man is charming. I will give him that much. Even when he's phoning it in, that accent and his just his basic body language and demeanor, he just kind of has that like easygoing way about him, and he has that big dick swagger about him that he's, when he's in uniform, like marching around, it's like it kind of works a little bit. <laughs> like, I don't think he knows what country he's in when he's delivering these lines. <laughs> I know a guy who's mean to servers and that guy was an asshole to servers in, in 1994 in 1994 see yes, i don't absolutely. think that etiquette i, th- I think he, he's kept that etiquette because servers aren't people to people like that so yeah well they don't tip in europe as far as i know so <laughs> like, it doesn't tip in I america see i bet <laughs> but 
but well that's probably his excuse when he's mm. in la or whatever I'm, I'm, I'm from europe yeah <laughs> where are you from lars far away <laughs> Uh, heavyweights. We should do an episode on heavyweights someday. Uh, sport. Hey, we've got, we've got sports. We got sports coming up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, spoiler alert. Uh, it's looking like next month is going to be sports drama month. Um, so hmm, heavyweights does have a go kart at the end. It does have a go kart, and it is about a fitness guru. Mm-hmm. Could work. Um, but um, I don't know exactly who to blame about this. I think it. I think the blame is shared equally, but. Um, there's a lot of ADR in this movie. Um, and one thing, I haven't been to film school. I've, I've certainly taken classes about film and stuff. But one thing that was always kind of hammered home is the idea that uh, if your sound editing is bad, generally that means the production, like somebody wasn't on top of it when they were making the film. Um, and I mean, in case in point, on Deadly Ground, the sole directorial effort as as created by one Steven Seagal, is riddled with ADR. Um, I can't even watch Weekend at Bernie's anymore. I've tried to go back and watch Weekend at Bernie's. I can't even sit through it. <laughs> yeah, it's just disembodied voices coming in from in and out of the frame. You don't know whose voice is connected to whom. It gives you flashbacks of the Ninja Turtles where, hey, why is Donatello's voice coming out of Leonardo's face? <laughs> like, don't worry about all that. All that kind of shit. Yeah, don't worry about that. Move on. <laughs> but in this case, like I noticed uh, Van Damme, seemingly almost every line he has is 80-yard. And that says to me maybe he was slurring his speech or maybe, like you said, he wasn't doing great with his dialogue or maybe they just fucked up with the boom mic that day. Um, But I want to say that it's both the director and his fault. Um, But in his case, uh, actually, I think it's fitting that you brought up uh, uh, Gal Gadot. Um, It seems to be the preferred pronunciation. I don't know. um, uh, She gets a lot of mileage out of her Israeli accent because it's such an uncommon one to American ears anyway that any line she says, it kind of has that Arnold Schwarzenegger effect where an Austrian accent is pretty uncommon, especially with that level of depth. (laughs) Um, So everything he says, he makes his own, no matter how absurd. Put that cookie down! Like, yes, he can say something stupid like that and you only hear him saying it and same with her where it's like every line she has it has a little bit of like exoticism to it that it spices it up a bit it makes it feel like acting when in actuality it's just not great english (laughs) 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 and in van damme's case yes his his belgian accent does actually help a little bit with adding a little bit of flair to some of his dialogue and you know one thing i will say about this movie in general is that it is directed by a writer, and it's surprisingly witty at times. <laughs> like It's a very dialogue-heavy movie, and the dialogue is not terrible most of the time, especially in regards to Raul Julia, and, uh, a.k.a. M. Bison's lines. Like He gets a lot of good speeches, and when you have that man at your disposal, you give him speeches. A little too... Like, he's actually... Like, his lines, he... The way he's playing it, it's right for the movie, but some of his lines don't really fit into the movie. Two in particular. Uh, also, he's about to rape Chun Li. By the way, <laughs> that, that's about to happen. Why is that? <laughs> they 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 could have just had her in the chambers. They didn't need to have him changing into. I, I didn't know he was gonna put on a robe. But when he went behind the thing, I'm like, oh, please tell me he's gonna put on a robe. <laughs> he, he put on a robe. That that sequence, I I agree, was very like 
disturbing for so many reasons yeah. and it really upsets me too because actually i think to trevor's point like one of the best line deliveries was when he gives that small little uh, speech to chun li about her father's death and just that like that's a very chilling like delivery of a pretty heinous you know comment but with the absurdity of him also wearing a robe and clearly like then he dims the lights and plays the the jazz music and everything it's just like uh it's wrong <laughs> that's something a crooked general says in a cambodian war film like that that's not street fighter yeah yeah it it's a fantastic line uh delivered quite ably by a fantastic actor the, the line is like for you the uh uh the day bison graced your village was the most important day of your life and then long pause for me it was tuesday tuesday <laughs> <laughs> yeah Tuesday. tuesday because he's classy <laughs> Tuesday yes I was yeah. gonna say though like it, it's real sad because you can tell in certain sequences that he's clearly just trying to get through it um, it does kind of feel and, and I have no way to prove it one way or another but it does kind of give me the sense that it was like that movie you sign up to do because you, you're trying to stack as many chips for your family before you pass on and and this one you know you can just kind of bang it knock it out of the park and and be done like so like there's there's de- and there seems to be like certain sequences where he almost like flips the switch where like he was taking it very seriously like he would an actor and then just kind of realized at a certain point like this is a shit show like i'm just gonna be as over the top as possible because clearly that's all they're looking for and we're just gonna you're gonna get full-on gomez adams like yeah. times 10 which i love yeah, I was. Saying, I read that he he took he wanted to do like a more Shakespearean take on it. He's like, this is a video game movie. I'm just gonna go Shakespeare on it. <laughs> I think Matt's right. Um, unfortunately, there are s- several scenes in this movie where you know, try as he might, you know, fantastic actor that he is, um, you can tell his is the man had cancer at the time. Um, he wasn't up to the task. Um, and in particular, actually, the one that comes to mind the most is that that confrontation with Chun Li, where he seems a little drawn back. It's not that like his interpretation of the material is incorrect. It's like I just don't think he had the energy for it. I um, mean, he seems a little withdrawn and just not all there. Um, he sticks the landing though with that crazy fucking skull face at the end. It's like, yeah. <laughs> so there's this there's a moment where she beats the shit out of him for a few minutes or at least his stunt double because good god i would not want to be the guy who strikes accidentally kicks him in the stomach yeah yeah accidentally kills Raul julie on the set <laughs> oh fuck god like on the set of street fighter uh wing <laughs> ming na wen kills Raul julie on accident nobody touch him <laughs> yeah um he like escapes to this chamber and it's very uh, james bond like and in fact this whole movie is actually very like old school james bond like um, like Sean Connery era James Bond, like complete with like hollowed out volcano lair kind of situation. Um, but he goes into behind this like this sealed chamber and he gasses everybody. And uh, E Honda has to tell everybody, it's gas. <laughs> it's like, no fucking shit. I can see it. <laughs> but uh, they do that weird cut to him where they like superimpose the skull on the wall on top of his face. And I think the director just told him, make a crazy face, Raul. And he was like, ah. <laughs> it is so fucking weird but yeah like when he is on in this movie holy shit like gomez adams dialed up to 11 is is pretty accurate because 
I don't know. I haven't actually done a deep dive on his filmography, unfortunately. Um, but he's just one of those guys that with two performances or three rather two Adams family films and this I fell in love with the guy and forevermore will just love his contribution to my childhood um but between all those roles there seems to be like this like self-awareness that's really fun about how he interprets the material because what makes Gomez so fun is he's like so braggadocious and over the top but he's a fucking idiot (laughs) and Dan Hedaya like knows it but he's like still intimidated by the guy somehow and it's the same with M. Bison where actually I kind of like some of the scenes he has with uh, Miguel Nunez like they kind of play off of each other pretty well like they have good timing together and like there's a couple of instances that come to mind one of which is like the big speech he has where he's showing off his Bisonopolis uh, (laughs) sculpt like it's it's like an architecture sculpture of what's what's to become of Southeast Asia, and we cut to Zangief, uh, Zangief and uh, DJ uh, Miguel Nunez, and just the looks on the two of their faces. Where <laughs> Miguel Nunez is just like, I just want to go home. <laughs> like uh, this is stupid. I want to go home. And Zangief is like, that was beautiful. <laughs> it's like the interplay between them is really fun. Where you have his two appendages where he has his one loyal subject, like fiercely loyal, like a hundred percent committed. And then the guy who's just there to, you know, for the paycheck and it has a fun dynamic to it, but uh, I want to zero in on that speech because I don't know if you guys caught this or are aware of it at all, but I haven't seen anything comparing the two, but it brings to mind um, the Ed Wood movie, Bride of the Monster. And uh, Kyle, you might know this through the movie Ed Wood. It's a uh, Bear Lugosi has a speech. And it's uh, home, I have no home. <laughs> the jungle is my home. <laughs> and he goes on to say, like, I will create a race of atomic supermen <laughs> that will conquer the world. And the the building of the music and the passion behind the shit material. It's so similar that I I want to say somebody had to somebody had to know that they were like doing the same thing again and it worked so well for me. One of the other fun moments with DJ though was uh, at the end when everything's going to shit in Shadowloo and uh, we get this close up of Raul Julia like all bug eyed and he's just kind of like staring off just past the camera and talking about how awesome it's going to be for him and Guile to finally like go hand to hand and like he can die a warrior's death and stuff and his eyes are all bugged out and dj's just kind of off to the side and he's like you and me dj it's just you and me versus the whole world and he's just kind of like... but what really punctuates the moment is there's like a there's a gunshot and you hear like it's not a wilhelm scream but it's it's pretty much a wilhelm scream so he's like it's like it's you and me against the world ah! <laughs> like dj just kind of wanders off and it's like ah. Oh. You can tell at least the two of them were having fun on the set. I, I don't imagine Raoul and Van Damme had a, a good rapport. I've actually seen some really strange behind-the-scenes footage of Raoul Julia actually did some of the fight choreography. And it's him in, like, a, a striped bathrobe practicing. And he's gaunt, and he's not graceful, but he's doing it. It's, it was actually making me kind of uncomfortable to watch. I was just going to say his delivery of the game over line, which was so cheesy, but just any other actor couldn't, couldn't have done that. Like, it's just, it had to be him. 
As I say, if Raul Julia didn't have stomach cancer, I think he probably would have slapped Van Damme just across the face, like the actor slap. Like, get it together, man! <laughs> like, he would have done something. Actually, that, he should have done that anyway. Like, you're not going to hit a man with cancer, are you? Pop! <laughs> get your shit together. No, the, the game the game overline, I think, is kind of amazing that it's in there. Because why the fuck not? I mean, you're doing, like, a, a video game movie that's only barely loosely adapted from the source material that is that is your trailer line like and if you have raul julia's pipes behind it my god yes it's like it's like i always say about willem dafoe and spider-man we'll meet again spider-man like if i was the green goblin on that movie i don't care if it was in the script or not i would poke the director and say can i say that so did you like i don't know if we talked about this on mortal Kombat, but where the um where it's like reptile, where it, like they'll have like the voice over there, or like where uh, Shang Tsung says uh, "flawless victory." Did you, did you like those? Did, did you did you like oh, that? Oh yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> and in the promotion for Street Fighter, we we got uh, the dulcet tones of Don De La Fontaine. Uh, I don't think he said "in a world," but in he, a did, world. he did. That guy? Yeah, he did. Oh. He did the narration for the trailers, and they did like show. They did like the the titles throwing themselves in your fucking face, like Sagat, <laughs> Dude, <laughs> they did all that. They did it right. The promotion was there. Um, it's debatable if the movie, you know, is there. But <laughs> in retrospect, I I actually I think it's an okay movie. But certainly, 1994, Trevor thought it was trash and didn't revisit it for at least a decade. But um, I think it's so awesome that uh, Raul Julia's last lines on film are like, you can't do better than that. <laughs> Kyle, you know what I'm talking about. V- Satan, I think we've- Satan being yeah cast out of heaven like lightning. Yeah, yeah no, yes. it's, it, it's the only thing that I've seen because I'd heard it was iconic. <laughs> and then I watched it on YouTube. I'm like, this, this is amazing. <laughs> yeah, no, no one else could do that. No one else could give that delivery. Now, for I beheld Satan as he fell from heaven like lightning. Last lines on film. That's you can't go out better than that. Followed by a big juicy explosion. <laughs> Why is he hailing Satan? It's such a it. It's a cool line. Don't get me wrong, but in I think a it's, different movie. Is it like? Is it like? Uh, it's not Dante's Inferno, is it? It's 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 a quote from something. I, Maybe I could be wrong on that. I'm probably wrong. Are you that. sure that it's not like uh, Hans Gruber uh, for Alexander wept for there were no other worlds to conquer? I'm like that's not from a book or anything. He just said that. <laughs> it's like no, that's a that's from an Iron Maiden song actually. <laughs> they, they 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 make fun of it on Thirty Rock. Alec Baldwin says it. He's like Alexander wept for there are no more worlds to conquer. Hans Gruber, Die Hard. <laughs> See that—that that is attribution. That's how you do that. Like you, you, you be bold. You, you let the folks know where you got your shit from. Do you want to talk but, about some of the tertiary characters, like just the? Not yet. Okay. <laughs> oh. Not yet. I just want to talk about. I just want to talk a little bit about uh, M. Bison, the game character, like the yeah. game version. So the Street Fighter Two version of him. Uh, so I mean. Anybody who's listening to this probably already knows about the the name situation with all the boss characters in in the Street Fighter 2 game, where you have 
basically this was all brought on because the uh, the Mike Tyson estate was not especially keen on the idea of having a character who looks just like him named Mike Bison who by the way puts like concrete in his gloves and is a dirty cheater <laughs> uh, so that caused um, the American version of the game to have all the boss characters uh, renamed so all they did was they just shuffled everyone to the left so Mike Bison became Balrog um, Balrog uh, became Vega, the guy with the claw. Um, Sagat's always Sagat, thankfully. <laughs> and, uh, um, Vega became M. Bison. And the M, I don't even know what it means. <laughs> Some in, in the 90s, I think a lot of people were circulating that it meant Major. Um, and in this movie, they call him like General M. Bison, <laughs> which makes things doubly confusing. Um, but in like uh, gaming circles uh, these days to avoid confusion speaking with like uh, Japanese uh, community members and stuff they just refer to the characters as uh, claw boxer and dictator uh, just so everybody's on the same page um, but I thought it was interesting um, that the interpretation of this character is totally unique to this movie like they the the shadow Lou like location like the the organization that's directly from the games and whatnot but the character himself bears very little resemblance to the one in the game, in that the one in the game had psychic powers. Um, this one has like electromagnetic powers that he gains, like kind of like King Kong and or Jason Voorhees style, where it's like it's like oh he died, but he came back, and now he's got lightning powers. <laughs> it's like why? It's like well, cause. Raul's got the cancer and he can't move so hot, so uh, Van Damme needs uh, needs to get hit with some lightning bolts to add some tension. <laughs> but Matt, what what did you think about like the comparison between the the film and the the game version of the character? I actually thought it was more comparable in the sense that like Bison, like in Street Fighter Two, like didn't really have any real backstory that other than just being a big bad like dictator, like. Uh, he was I always thought it was stood out to me how like tiny he was in comparison uh the the fight previous is is Sagat and he's one, the tallest character in the game and um so when you get the bison he's actually one of the smaller uh character builds so I, that was always uh fascinating to me to seeing like oh this guy who's like a normal sized person but then he whoops your ass so um so actually I thought the interpretation in the film was pretty comparable um I thought the effects, the Superman punch thing he does, like, uh, you had to have it because everyone remembers getting their butt kicked by Bison with that, but it, it looked really bad. Yeah. Like, it was really poor wire work. So. Yeah, it's supposed to be a, a rendition of the Psycho Crusher, which in the game he's, like, covered in psychic fire and he does, like, a, a corkscrew, like, like, Kyle, think of uh, Raiden from Mortal Kombat, the, <laughs> that move. Where he charges at you from across the screen? Oh fuck that! Yeah, I know. You're talking about. <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Fucking it's hate that, that, except for he's like spinning while he's doing it. Nah. Um, but I guess that was supposed to be an interpretation of that. It looks pretty shit. Um, but you know, it's kind of neat that they tried. Um, the flash kick, um, going back to Guile, actually is spot on. I like that we got that. Um, Van Dam, I think, does a couple of his sweeps, the double sweeps, um, which Guile and uh. Charlie also always has the, the no he doesn't have a double sweep but uh, no upside down kick though <laughs> that would have been a little complicated to pull off for Guile um, no sonic boom either but I did like that we got a flash kick and uh, yeah the psycho crusher was 
pretty crap, but um, one fun bit of trivia that I heard on the commentary was that uh, the director said that Raul Julia, like part of what got him interested in being a film actor was uh, Errol Flynn's Adventures of Robin Hood film. And uh, he said it was a joy to see Raul Julia, who grew up on Robin Hood, get to swing on a rope um, in the last performance of his life. And he actually did the stunt himself. And it's kind of cool. Like, I don't know if he asked to do that himself, but it's like, yeah, that's kind of cool. That You know, the thing that inspired you to get into filmmaking in the first place, you, you get to do one of the most iconic swashbuckling stunts you could ever think of. But anyway, um, I don't know if I have any more to say about Raul. Uh, there's always, of course, more to say about him. But Kyle, you a long time ago, <laughs> you, you had mentioned you wanted to get to some of the other tertiary characters. Uh, which one do you want to start with? Is it Zangief? Is he the big dude? <laughs> yes. yes. Okay. So I I like this dude, and I I almost it took me a second, but I recognized him. Uh, he's one of those actors that kind of pops up in things that you don't know his name, but you're just like, oh, it's that guy. He's in Any Given Sunday. Uh, when I figured out who it was, I'm like, oh, that's the dude from Any Given Sunday. I'm like, oh, I've got I can I've got to download that. That's what made me watch it. That's what made me watch Any Given <laughs> Sunday on the plane. It's because I recognized him. But I had to point him out because uh, he's actually funny and he's fucking menacing. Like he is enormous. Yeah, I think he's legit six five. And uh, in uh, any given Sunday, yeah, he's kind of terrifying. Yeah. Like, he he has the uh, he has the Legion of Doom face paint. Yeah, and I think he's the one with the pet gator. Yeah, he well. throws the caiman. <laughs> he throws yeah. the gator in there. Yeah, um, he seems unfortunately pretty true to life, um, as far as I understand. <laughs> he, um, I think he does maybe some voice acting or something. I'm not sure. Uh, he got into some hot water talking shit about some dude who passed away. But I guess oh, there were. I, I I've heard about that. It's a uh, Gunnar Hansen. Um, so he took on for the like more recent uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre films. Yes, like he was Leatherface in some of the more recent ones, and I guess yeah, he had some sort of tiff with uh gunnar hansen at like conventions or something mm-hmm. and uh he posted a caddy twitter comment when gunnar hansen died and the fan base responded so uh stay off twitter that that's the that's the lesson of that story <laughs> did you see what happened to ari shafir after kobe bryant passed away <laughs> yeah i did <laughs> stay off twitter that's yeah, just, the lesson <laughs> you don't need to get it out there the world doesn't need to know just say like, hey zangief shut up shut up <laughs> But um, this uh, this fella's name uh, for anyone who's interested, and I'm probably gonna butcher this. Polish. Is a Andrew Brynarski. He's a Brynarski. ski. He's yeah, a ski. He's a ski. Um, yeah, he has wonderful physical presence. Uh, he actually kind of nails the like Rocky and Bullwinkle Russian accent. Mm-hmm. Like it's not a good Russian accent, but it's like cartoony in the right way. It's what I'm looking for in a Russian accent. Exactly. <laughs> yes. And, like, he was actually one of the bigger takeaways from when I initially saw this movie as a child. Man's got presence. I, yeah. I thought he was legit funny. Like, almost every line he has is, like, kind of priceless. He has the like, best lines, and yeah. And actually, it, it's impressive for a character who only has about, like, four lines in the whole movie that he is able to actually have a redemption story yeah. that they managed to cobble together in, like, ten seconds, but... It works. Like, you don't hate him throughout the movie, despite the fact that he's clearly, like, the number two big bad. Yeah, he, he does have a fun arc where he's so dumb that he can't be evil because he's so dumb. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure he's done all sorts of horrible shit, but we didn't see any of that. It's it, What we get in the film, 
he does have a fun arc where he only becomes aware that he's even working for the bad guys like at the very end because again so dumb didn't realize maybe if he'd gotten like a kano stomach kick on chun li we would have disliked him a bit more like if you'd seen him actually do something but yeah. i yeah. feel like originally he might have been the torturer and Ooh. that they just slapped that guy in there because they realized that you can't take a major figure and make him a sadistic like maniac because even like bison is like aside from the opening where he's snapping guys necks if you actually remove that sequence like it's kind of hard to really hate him throughout the movie like even though he's doing horrible things it's like in the sequence you you describe with chun lee's even more heinous but um but it's like it almost feels like they had to like kind of couple these things together in order to make it so it's like okay like we need to make it clear that this guy's not terrible this guy is though like you really need to hate him yeah i mean again directed by a writer i'm sure he has a copy of save the cat on his shelf and he, he understands like you know if i want to make zangief like likable at the end i better not make him a bastard in the early goings and uh, it's funny that you mentioned the torturer that's a uh, joe bagna <laughs> joe bagna from uh, australia uh, he's a heavyweight boxer uh, kind of journeyman like on the level of like a chuck wepner or a randall tex cobb kind of clashed with the best of multiple decades not like he had a positive win record <laughs> i'll say that much but like he's kind of like a local hero in uh, parts of australia is he one of those boxers that smoke cigarettes like randall tex cobb oh yeah yeah he he uh he uh one of those guys who's a face of hamburger after he retired like oh i mean if you look at the guy yeah he's taken some shots <laughs> seems to have a good attitude about things though but i just thought it was funny that's like that is Joe Bugner. <laughs> like, what's he doing here? Oh, wait. It's an Australian production. So we need a big dude that knows how to fall down because apparently they forgot the crash pads that day. <laughs> but, yeah, Zangief, so many good lines. Like, e even the thing with the thumbs up, the thumb to the side, that... I, I smiled at that where Van Damme sees it and like everyone else just kind of ignores it. They're like, okay, he's he's an idiot. <laughs> I'll just, just keep walking. But Van Damme's like, you know... This is an opportunity for healing. <laughs> and he turns his thumb up, right side up. And then, of course, the, you got paid? <laughs> like, in response to DJ, you know, kind of pulling the curtain back and explaining to him in the finale of the movie that, hey, you and I have both been working for a vicious dictator. <laughs> I, By the way... Oh, as I said, was Zangief too stupid to work for the Russian mob? I'm like, dude, you should go to your homeland because they will pay you a lot of money to break necks because you are a monster. <laughs> I mean, I I always liked his uh, backstory in the uh, in the video game where he's he's a Russian pro wrestler, and because of the time in which the game came out in 1991, uh, we had him hanging out with Gorbachev. <laughs> like that's his ending he's he's doing a cossack dance with gorbachev he's also covered in scars like he is yeah. in the end of the movie because he would train by wrestling bears in siberia oh, yeah. of course so yes. um i was gonna say uh his line when it's a quick change the channel was always my favorite as a kid yeah but um i i think he zangief balrog E Honda, they're all kind of the same character in certain ways to me. Like they're not, they're just kind of there. Like, 
Yeah, they're yeah. all pushed off to the side. Zangief stands out because he gets the really good lines, and he gets—he actually has an arc, whereas everyone else is just kind of support crew. Where Balrog and Ihonda in this film serve as like an entourage for Chun Li, um, who is a journalist in this. In the game, she's like an Interpol agent, so she has even greater agency than she has in this movie. She's kind of like a like a not a secret agent but like doing things on her own terms like she's an interloper i guess and she's trying to get at bison for personal revenge purposes because just like in the games uh he killed her dad um but yeah uh balrog uh as portrayed by the other um, johnson Gr- yes little johnson uh diehard connection uh steven e d'souza wrote that movie uh grand l bush um yeah he's just kind of there um and i think it's really funny that he's playing this role he's like a a hero character whereas in the games he's always been a heel like he's always been like one of the prominent heels but in this one it's like what else do we what what do we do with him it's like well he can be like the cameraman for chun li (laughs) it's more i think it's chun li's movie uh honestly like it's supposed to be guile's movie but honestly i think the focus is more on her and she does a lot more it's a it's an interesting situation so uh, we have Ming-Na Wen playing uh, Chun-Li. Um, I think it's kind of neat. I think her career is starting to like have a resurgence in recent years. Mulan. Um, she, uh, oh, she's in there? Mm-hmm. I think oh. she did... Uh, I think she did voice acting for the Disney one, and then I think she might be in the live-action one as well. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if she was in the live-action one, but I think it's funny that both her and Byron Mann both like took to voice acting like like ducks to water. Like, <laughs> it's like... It's, um, but yeah, in terms of like uh, character storylines and whatnot, yeah, she has probably the most personal motivation and has the most personal reason for trying to get at M. Bison. Um, but you can tell like there's some machinations going on behind the scenes where they, they really weren't ready to do that. Where it's like, well, you know, Van Damme's kind of the biggest name in the cast and like we probably dumped all of our money into getting him and he's on the poster so we need to find a way to like bump him up to like proper protagonist level. But yeah, in terms of like character motivations, she is the one with the most on the line. Mm-hmm. Like she is the she is the one with the most backstory and the most going on. Um, but in terms of screen time, she kind of like dips in and out of the movie um, pretty harshly, actually. Where it's like she she's pretty important in the middle. Uh, she's kind of there in the beginning, and she's not there at all at the end. Um, so they kind of shortchange her a bit, but. Um, I like I liked her in the movie just fine. She unfortunately doesn't have a whole lot to do in the finale. Like she she gets her her kicks in on Bison in the middle, and then she's nowhere to be found in the end. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, Guile has to come in and save the day at the end. Obviously, he's been doing so much throughout the rest of the film that he has to come in at the end and you know fix everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, they they try to like give him more motivation in the form of carlos <laughs> in the form of uh charles blanca um who is kind of doing double duty although we didn't really know it in 1994 so kyle you probably aren't aware of this but um the character charlie is a character in the games but not in street fighter 2 oh like i would- actually did know that Oh, you did? Cool. No, no, I didn't know that. Sorry. Oh. You, you, like, you got me all excited for a second. <laughs> uh, he wouldn't like. He wouldn't properly like make his debut in the series until Street Fighter Alpha, like 
barely a year after this movie came out. Um, and he doesn't look anything like this, and he is most certainly not Blanca. So I would say, so Blanca is not Carlos. No. Okay. No. Blanca, I think actually, uh, the, the his name I think is Billy. He's from Brazil. If I, yeah. It's, if I remember right, yeah, he's, he's just a feral child that gets yeah. lost in the jungle of Brazil and evolves into a monster as a result. So gets raised by wolves. Like, it was a different time. That, that's literally. I mean, that, the thing you have to like recall with this, like these games were very like every character was just a stereotype for whatever country they represented yeah. back then, yeah. and they were they got away with it back then, and they've since done things to to fix it so it's not as heinous as it once was but i guess america did just fine (laughs) no they they've they've gone to great lengths to correct that like in terms of rep in terms of like representation the street fighter series is kind of ahead of the curve in some ways like they've they've got a lot of flags like represented in that um and charlie is a weird one because he's two characters merged where you have Blanca and Charlie merged together, but they were under no obligation to, you know, give Charlie any distinct identity at this point because he wasn't in the games yet. He was just in Guile's backstory, which, you know, unless you beat the game in the arcade or read the instruction manual, like, a year after when the game came to the home console version, you wouldn't know that anyway. But I do think it's funny that um, this character's had, like, three different interpretations, um over time where we have uh, the street fighter 2v version so there was a tv series an animated one where he looks like jean renault like i'm almost positive they just modeled him after jean renault in the 90s um and then in the games he would go on to have one of the coolest hairdos in gaming history it's like it's like a blonde lightning bolt (laughs) it juts it juts out from his forehead like two feet in front and then curves inward like at a sharp angle Mm -hmm. um and then there's the movie version where it's like Charlie Blanca. <laughs> Dude, why couldn't they like? You didn't have to get Lou Ferrigno, but get somebody who's a monster. Because Blanca, I remember being like, he was kind of crouched, but he was jacked. Like he was, he was beefy. So, one thing I'll say with when in watching this now, like I've complained about it plenty, but like obviously, like this movie exists because they were trying to take the Street Fighter universe and it reintroduces like a G.I. Joe line. Like, how can we make these characters like in an endless war where they'll constantly be battling so people can buy their action figures? I feel like it really stands out like the way this was written by the director D'Souza, like, I think he had the ideas. Like, he had the idea exactly like you said, but then the interpretation when the actual budget came up and like what the makeup artist produced was what you got. And I, 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 there's a many, many times throughout this movie where it feels like he has the right idea in order to build a franchise for toys, but it, the execution is just so piss poor that we get what we get. He looks like Simple Jack. <laughs> That's what I was thinking when I was watching. I'm like, he looks like Simple Jack from Tropic Thunder. Yeah, he does not look good. I'll say that much. Um, Blanco was actually one of the bigger disappointments because you need to remember, for me personally, 1994, I was still obsessed with Godzilla, and you're promising me a monster literally from, like, the first five minutes of this movie. Like, Blanca is introduced to us. Like, he's put in the transmutation chamber or whatever, like, in the opening minutes of the movie, and it's not until, like, the last 20 
the, the doors open and we finally get to see him and it's this grand unveiling and it's like, oh my god, that is ass. <laughs> like, it's such a letdown. Points to Mortal Kombat, uh, I think Goro's awesome. Uh, I know it's a big, like, it's a, a person with a puppet, I'm guessing. Like, like the puppet head. It's a person wearing a puppet torso yeah. on their shoulder. <laughs> it fucking rocks. It, like, as a kid, I'm like, that guy's actually fucking terrifying. Like, I actually did have nightmares about Goro when I was a kid after watching that movie. Yeah, it's, it's him uh, walking around in that dark tunnel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he, he's got some really bad phlegm or something. Like, he had baked ZD the night before. <laughs> he's he's, ha- he's hacking up all sorts of shit. Um, but, yeah, Blanco was a big disappointment, I think, for everybody. Because he doesn't really do shit. And he does nothing. They did. They devote way too much screen time. We cut back to him and Dalsium in that fucking lab all throughout the movie, and it has no payoff. And, in fact, it, like... It gets insulting at a certain point, where when they try to have their big, heavy, emotional moment when Guile <laughs> sees his friend, Charlie, and he's like, Okay, Charlie, I'm going to put shh, you out of your misery shh. now. <laughs> he's just going to fucking shoot him. He doesn't <laughs> even think about it. He's just like, Yeah, he doesn't oh, think about it. Dude, I, 30 sec. he didn't even give, th- it was five seconds. He's just like, well, I got to fucking kill him. Dude, I, <laughs> he, he just pulls the gun up. <laughs> it's it's one of the funniest things I've seen, and it's not supposed to be fun. Like it's one of those. It wasn't supposed to be funny, but it's funny. Yeah, it, it's it's done very hastily oh. to comedic effect, <laughs> and it's supposed to be this grand reunion and this big, heavy, emotional moment where we learn a little something about humanity, Shit, sorry. and we all have a little Blanca inside ourselves, and we just need to find it and tap into it to be better people. <laughs> but no, no, don't move. Shh, shh, shh. but yeah Blanca and Dulcim are a huge waste in this and what's funny is I didn't even really like Blanca that much um, in the game Um, Dulcim I played a lot because he had the stretchy limbs and when I was young I I liked you know playing at a distance I liked being able to play keep away because I wasn't very good so I you know would hedge hedge my bets on like if I can just keep him the fuck away from me and not get spinning pile drivered maybe I'll make it (laughs) but um he has nothing to do here. He's just a scientist that has ethics, I guess, and gets harassed by a guy who's totally not Australian. I like that guy's accent. That guy's face, like the goon that's like warding over him throughout the entire movie, they picked him really well. <laughs> uh, he looks like Ron. He look. I, I was I was watching him because Ron Jeremy's popped up in films before. I'm like, I at first I'm like, is that Ron? No, that guy's way like way too tall, like too big to be Ron Jeremy. But he's gross like him. He looks mean. Like I don't think that guy was a cool person. Off, like, like <laughs> Offset, I'm sure he was a nasty guy. <laughs> yeah, maybe. but the thing that was really insulting with Dalsium though is that um, it's not even done well. They have him appear for like two seconds, like with his head shaved, and that's to match his appearance from the game. And one thing that the director, I will say, he did actually put in some effort to try to have everybody kind of show up, and they're like signature look at least you know for a few seconds mostly towards the end of the movie like everybody's in street clothes most of the movie but by the final reel like everybody's in their uniform essentially yeah balrog gets boxing gloves out of nowhere yeah he gets boxing he puts on boxing gloves um, to fight bad guys yeah to fight bad guys dude if there was ever a time for the gloves to come off it's now (laughs) exactly it doesn't make a lick of sense and he gets his his uh blue and white uh, shirt like with the cut off sleeves and whatnot with like the Tyson towel kind of look to it 
But yeah, in Dalsum's case, uh, the explanation that we're given, at least communicated to us visually in the movie, is that uh, by crashing into some chemicals, uh, his hair gets like burnt off in some capacity. But the problem is like that's not illustrated to us. He crashes into the chemicals. Several se- several scenes go by, and then at the very end, for some reason, his hair's gone. And I remember. I don't know if you remember this, Matt, but I remember talking to you and being like, why did he shave his head? <laughs> like, like, the first time we watched the movie, like, I I don't think I saw that he got splashed with something, like, and I didn't put, the, I didn't put that together because the movie did a really shit job of communicating that to me. So it just ended up being very, very, very confusing. Yeah, I, I didn't even realize that was the case. I just always assumed it was that they were reaching towards the end of the movie and they realized people may not know who the fuck this character is. <laughs> So, um, yeah. and I, I feel like there was a lot of that because I feel like what you were just describing with all the characters kind of appearing in their their costumes was kind of a hurried attempt to be like we need to make sure people actually know this is who this is supposed to be. Like the funniest one to me was always T Hawk, where they have that one like throwaway line where he's like, "Hey, what's with the headband or whatever?" And he has to explain that he's Cherokee and that it's his good luck charm or whatever. It's like, otherwise you would have no idea that this is a character from the video game or that this guy's even significant enough to have a name. Like, the only thing that stood out to me with that guy was the fact that, like, Trevor had mentioned that he didn't show up for the motion capture for the video game that came out that was rendered off all these actors. And also that the fact that he had a big old bandage on his head for the first half of the movie for no apparent reason. And if, in fact, it was an injury from filming... Why didn't he just wear the damn headband over it from the start? Yeah, I want to say, and yeah, that that bandage sticks out like a sore thumb. And I want to say that maybe that was like the the writer-director's idea of like planting the seeds for justification of the headband or something. Like, oh, he needs to put on a headband to cover the the wound. It's like, well, he already has a bandage. What the fuck? Why does he just keep wearing the bandage? (laughs) But yeah, that's an example of an ADR'd line where they're sneaking into the Shadowloo headquarters, as represented by uh, the Agro Crag uh, from Nickelodeon Guts. Um, basically, uh, they built, like, a uh, Cambodian or Thai-style, like, temple, like a jungle temple out of styrofoam, I, th- I think, in a, it was either Thailand or Australia. Uh, so the set where they're doing all the gunfighting and stuff there outside actually is a built set, and it's kind of neat to look at. It's pretty massive. Um, but yeah, there's just that clumsily 80-yard line of, what's with the headband, D-Hawk? And he's like, it's Cherokee. I wear it for good luck in battle. And he's like, okay, okay then. <laughs> Even I knew and, that. I like. I know what T-Hawk looks like. I'm like, that's not... I didn't know who that dude was, but then when he said T-Hawk, I'm like, wait, that's who that's supposed to be? And it's just a white dude? (laughs) (laughs) Well, when I was a kid, I don't think I put together he was T-Hawk until I think Matt told me or something. Or would you? It it didn't register because, Kyle, you've seen the animated movie, which shares, you know, the same characters. T-Hawk is supposed to be a seven-foot, just, like, (laughs) mountain. Yeah. (laughs) Like, he's, he's, I think, actually the tallest character in the cast. Like, even bigger than Sagat. And he's gigantic, and this guy is uh, kind of ropey. He's, he's wiry. <laughs> Real quick, I don't know if this was a mirage or not. Uh, gross point blank. Fight scene between John Cusack and the little guy. What's the little guy's name? Benny the Jet Urquidez. Was yep. he? Did I see him? Did he? Yeah, he was did. the fight choreographer. Right. Yes. 
I, I, I was like, I swear to God, that's him because he wears the same fucking thing. He's got that same haircut. He's got those dead, eye, like those dead black eyes. I'm like, he has him. very deep set eyes. He yes. has legit fighters' eyes. Um, in that there's a lot of scar tissue built up around his cheekbones, um, like causing his eyes to appear sunken. I'm so glad you noticed him mm-hmm. because we've actually done a movie where he's also in it, uh, Digstown. Um, I believe he was also the fight choreographer for that film as well. I'd revisit um, that movie if it weren't for the James Woods, but yeah. <laughs> well, Oliver Platt, man. You can you can turn it off after Oliver Platt has the drunken gambling scene I at, just... the, at the pool hall. I just watch any given Sunday, and I'm good for James Woods for a little while. Okay, so another two, three years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, Benny Urquidez was the fight choreographer for this film. He also is there in Sagat's gang. Um, he he had an insurmountable task on this production because almost none of these actors knew how to throw a punch. Um, I think Damien Chapa is the worst of the lot. Like, I could be wrong. Maybe you guys have an argument against that, but I think he is the fucking bottom of the barrel in terms of being able to handle himself on screen. Ken? Yes. Miklo. Yeah, Lo Miklo. (laughs) Miklo. (laughs) Kyle, you want to tell the folks at home who Miklo is? Oh, yeah. Miklo is a white dude from Blood In, Blood Out who has a real downward spiral in that film. (laughs) But, yeah, he's he's a... The character... Is portrayed by this gentleman. What's his name? Damien Chapa. Yeah, uh, it's really funny. <laughs> I don't know what he's doing in that movie, but it's it's really funny. Uh, are you you want to get to the Ken and Ryuness of the? I of mean, the unless film? you got any more to say about T Hawk. <laughs> no, I don't. Uh, There's just some white dude that was there. Yeah, T Hawk didn't have a whole lot to do. I noticed that he uh, apparently he's only allowed to throw uppercuts, and uh, T Hawk. I don't know how you would render this on film without the assistance of many, many, many wire teams and probably a lot of CGI, but T-Hawk has one of the most badass throws in video game history. He grabs you by the top of the head and in a windmill motion <laughs> spins you around and drives your temple into the ground. And uh, instead of that, we get like a... It's not even a choke slam. It's like It's like a... Russian leg sweep choke slam or something—it's it, lame, but yeah, that's about about all that can be said about T Hawk in this movie. Like Matt had pointed out, the most interesting thing about this guy is that he didn't show up for the filming sessions for the Street Fighter the movie the game. Um, he, he pieced out as soon as the production wrapped, and I think he only had to devote six hours. They, he only needed to stick around for six more hours to collect that paycheck. And he said, fuck it, I'm out. <laughs> what, did he have his like real estate license exam after that or something? Like, what? Oh, I'm sure he had a shift at Red Lobster <laughs> or something. <laughs> I'm on the bigger and better things, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for real. Um, I don't even know the guy's name. In fact, it's uh, Greg Rainwater, by the way. Uh, so Greg Rainwater portrayed TR. Rainwater? But Greg Rainwater, yes. Yeah, he's quarter native I okay i was gonna say is he actually native no, american he, he's he's legit native so they at least did their due diligence there but in terms of physicality and screen presence nah. <laughs> so wait a minute wait a minute wait, 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 wait. you have a native american actor in the film and he's not t-hawk <laughs> and he is not t-hawk <laughs> I, ex- yeah i don't I, how do you how do you waffle on that like how do you how do you miss that 
Well, let's pivot to that, and we'll come back to Ken, okay? Okay, thank so, you. So what, what Kyle is alluding to here is we have Wes Studi, um, famed Native American actor. Top uh, three. He is, he, is, he is an all-star. Yeah, he's, like, top three, like, yeah. contemporary Native actors, honestly. Mm. Like, he's in the Hall of Fame. He's awesome. Um, in fact, he's been on the show before, Deep Rising. Mm-hmm. And he was awesome in that. Yeah, he, he was. Has a, he has a knack for showing up to shit shows and making something. Of it. God damn Dances it. with wolves, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I think Last of the Mohicans was one of his big ones, too. Um, and uh, Heat. He's in Heat as well. Huh? Uh, Everybody's in Heat. Jesus. Yeah, everybody is. But I've always really, really liked West Studi. And uh, there's that uh, um, uh, Hostiles, I think. I think he was nominated for an Oscar for that one. I think it's Christian Bale. And it takes place in like the Frontier era. Um, but yeah, he's, he's an outstanding actor. And I'm always happy to see him. But... They cast him as Sagat in this. And I don't know, Matt, maybe you don't have too much of a reaction to this, but I seem to remember Sagat being like one of your favorite characters in Street Fighter. Or at least favorite to play, anyway. Well, the thing that was cool about him, like the only reason knowing anything about Street Fighter 1 was that was the the beginning of the storylines, and that's when it was Ken and Ryu versus Sagat, who was the big bad at that. I always thought it was a cool character because he had the big scar on his chest, which is only visible in this one, the very last sequence of the movie. Um, and it never gets explained. It's just randomly just a shot of him with no shirt on. Um, but I always thought that was a cool backstory that Ryu fought him. He gave him the dragon punch and left this massive scar on his chest that he forever carries as this burden that pissed him off and forces him to go train you know, harder to go avenge his loss. Um, and yeah, in terms of playing character, I, I took advantage of the fact that he was way too powerful in one of the iterations of Street Fighter. I can't recall which one offhand. But um, the only thing I can think of that maybe he was cast in this role is like he's one of the only actors that c- came across as somewhat menacing. And since Sagat is supposed to be like the second tier, like big bad of it, that like you need somebody who can portray being a bad guy clearly so there's no confusion but i I don't know it's a really weird casting say that and he maybe maybe he did audition for uh t hawk and then it's like no we want you for something else. like you're you're a little more menacing but they don't let him like he's not a scary bad guy in this because he's kind of goofy like like come on give me those keys i'll get you out of him yeah they don't really do his his threat level it kind of vacillates back and forth between like scratching the surface of being legit evil and then like bulk and he gets cl- <laughs> yeah he gets clowned on too often to the point that his threat level gets diminished but it it's really puzzling casting to the point that maybe i don't know he he felt uncomfortable playing t-hawk because he's like you want me to be the token fuck you <laughs> yeah that's actually a good point he might have he might have been like i'm not playing a native american video game character I, I think it comes back to again that like the whole point of this movie was to sell toys and all of the main characters the good guys if you want to call them are young you know supposed to be model like these are supposed to be the models for the tv series that was supposed to be the spin-off from this like like, that's the thing we have to remember. That was the actual goal of this film, was it was going to catch all of the attention of all the kids who are obsessed with this video game, and they're going to demand more, so they'll make us some shitty spin-off animated series with a character like T-Hawk that, how do you distinguish him? Oh, he has a headband, and oh, he's this youngish, you know, 
looking tan guy like that's you know that could be a new character i mean we saw how you could take any generic random people in the mighty Morphin power rangers and make it so people will still rally behind them despite you know not maybe being the biggest actor or maybe you know having talent was west duty the uh the villain in last of the mohicans Yes, Ooh, he was. Uh, he was probably the big bad. Like he was the one that did all the nasty shit. I gotta watch. <laughs> I, I've never seen Last of the Mohicans. Uh, I might actually. I might check that out. You might have problems with it. It's a Michael Mann. <laughs> Michael Mann. Oh, Heat. Yeah. <laughs> so keep that in the back of your mind when you're watching it. But hey, Real quick. You get Daniel Day Lewis, and uh, you get. I forget who did the score, but it's very, very famous for its score too. Do you like Heat, Matt? Yeah. Okay, thank you. That's all I needed. Thank you. It's I feel like Heat's like personally I, I feel like that's one of those movies that because everyone's in it, it gets overvalued. It's kinda like it's like you look at it and it's like, how could this be shitty? It's got all of these actors in it and I like all <laughs> these actors. I mean that's very much how I felt with uh what was that one to uh Once Upon a Time in Mexico? Like same kind of thing where it was like this movie's not that good, but I like everybody involved with this. Like, I can't bring myself to say I hate this movie, but... Mexico or Hollywood? Uh, Mexico. Okay, I haven't seen that one. Wait, you don't need to. Oh, wait, Johnny, <laughs> is that the Johnny Depp one? Okay. Yeah. Okay, I have seen that one. Yeah, yeah you can you can keep that. Yeah, you can you can keep that. Actually, uh, I did a little bit of housekeeping recently. Um, very similar situation, Copland. Um, you look at the cast for that and nothing else it's like how could it be bad it's like well it's not bad it's just it's not the sum of its parts um and i guess you could make that argument with heat where it's it i think it's a it's a kind of a a feel movie like most of the material is it's kind of laborious at times it doesn't have a fantastic pace but like it has a nice atmosphere and that's mostly what i like about it well not to go off a whole rant about it but what what i will say is um you have to remember too that like we're in a different era now where it's we're getting spoiled by the christopher nolans that can get like all these huge actors to appear for like 10 second bit in a movie now just because you know or all the Marvel shit, where like people, since it's all green screen, you can have every major character actor of living appear, like you know, again for five minutes or whatever. So, you're, so we're spoiled on seeing massive groupings of actors. That didn't happen back when Heat came out. Like when Heat came out, it was like a huge deal that all these major actors were assembled at the same time, and it was like, and it wasn't like a Saving Private Ryan where you just got to him before they got big. It was like, no, these are some of the most powerful actors in Hollywood. They all just happened to agree to do this script. So, All you need to say is De Niro and Pacino. Yeah. Like, first time they're sitting down in the same room together, that's all you need to sell that movie. It didn't have to be good. <laughs> uh, Kyle, what what do you have, though? I'll, I'll, move, I'll move us away from heat. It's okay. <laughs> so, uh, folks at home, if you haven't been listening to this show for too long uh, this is almost like a running gag between uh, kyle and i that kyle doesn't particularly like heat i like heat <laughs> and uh, we, it comes up sometimes so. there's nothing wrong with liking it it's just i feel like it's too highly regarded like it's it's considered one of the great films of all times like oh heat well, I, will, I will never disagree with you but i will never tire of having this discussion <laughs> <laughs> so anyway back to west studio yes west studio um Sagat, like Matt had said, was the original uh, final boss of the Street Fighter franchise. He got demoted in subsequent games. 
Um, he's a Muay Thai champion, so he's supposed to be from Thailand, uh, ethnically and otherwise, and he's supposed to be about seven feet tall, um, so didn't quite get that <laughs> in terms of casting. Um, but more than that, what's especially puzzling about the character's placement in the script is uh, his relationship with Ryu. Um, like Matt had said, that's, that is the core of, of maybe like a huge chunk of the franchise is the rivalry between the two of them. If I remember right, the whole reason why Sagat works for M. Bison isn't because he's a, he's a turd, like he's a pure evil guy. It's because he wants an excuse to get, you know, in there with Ryu again. And he's, he's hanging out with M. Bison to use his resources to get another shot. Um, I believe, and I'm sure there's plenty of people who actually <laughs> are well-versed in it, the lore of it all, but if I recall, it's his tournament, actually. Yeah, he just yeah. happens to be partnered with Bison, and technically, he's supposed to be the blast boss. It's just if you manage to defeat him, then you get the pr then Bison decides to fight you. It's well, not so much that, um, yeah, it's like he's the one who actually assembled everyone and brought them in. Very similar, actually, to like Mortal Kombat, how it's like in theory Goro's the champion. Like it just so happens that. Shang Tsung will fight you if you beat Goro. So. Well, it's actually very, very similar in the games, if I understand correctly, because Shang Tsung, his whole deal is he steals souls. So it would make sense, hmm, this guy beat Goro, therefore his soul is probably worth a little something, I may as well snatch it for myself. Same deal with M. Bison, as far as I understand in the games, the whole idea is he has his psycho power, <laughs> which is basically evil psychic powers, which in the the lore of street fighter is interpreted as a form of martial art <laughs> okay that sounds like bullshit to me but that sounds like the equivalent of like bushido blade where there's a guy with the pistol and then you with the sword <laughs> it's like that's not fair that's not fighting um and as far as i understand m bison his whole deal is he has a fascination with uh Ken, the martial art that ken and ryu practice because it it has the hado power the that uh, could potentially be greater than his own, so he, much like Shang Tsung, wants a taste of that or something. Um, but the whole thing I'm getting at here is that Sagat and Ryu are a pair, and in this movie, <laughs> we, we go to great lengths to make that not so, where in the final showdown of the movie, throughout the entire movie, actually, Ryu has been posed opposite Vega, uh, Claw, um, and they, they have a little Godzilla style like tease in the middle of the movie that doesn't get like an actual payoff until the final reel of the movie. But when we get to the end, we have everybody in the same room. We have Ken and Ryu and Sagat and Vega and they switch dance partners. And it's like, what? <laughs> it's like, it's like anybody who knows anything about the, the backstory of the games is just like, hang on. Why is Ken delivering the shoulder you can to Sagat? Like, I'm what? <laughs> like just rapid blinking what <laughs> um i mean it, it's not like in in terms of like putting together a script for a movie it's not damning by any means it all makes sense they they do lay down the breadcrumbs for the specific rivalries between all four of these characters um but when compared to the games it's just very it's baffling it's like that's like one of the big things that most people know but in terms of his performance, I thought Wes Studi showed up. Like like Kyle had said, I don't think anyone really completely phoned it in, and certainly not him. Like he he delivers his lines with verve when he when he actually needs to be kind of menacing, he is. 
And he actually gets a couple of funny beats. Like, I like when he gets the sway bag in the face. That was, that was kind of funny. <laughs> so in terms of actors not phoning it in, what was your opinion of Sawada? <sighs> oh, fuck. <laughs> so, Kyle, I don't blame you for not wrecking that. Sawada was a character that was basically, he was an actor that was doing advertisements for Capcom, the company that makes Street Fighter. And they kind of just the they encourage the director to include this guy in he's a japanese actor and, oh uh, i know you're talking about yeah you know you know who he's talking about <laughs> who are you talking about okay yeah he was supposed to be like the spokesman like potential spokesman for capcom going forward because a contemporary uh, of this 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 movie was a uh, segata sanshiro um, who was like the Sega mascot in the 90s who did all sorts of hilarious commercials. You can look them up on YouTube. Please do. They're fucking awesome. Um, but Capcom was like playing around with the idea of having their own like Japanese celebrity guy to do commercials for them and stuff. And they got this fucking guy, <laughs> Kenya Sawada, who I can't speak for his Japanese acting ability, but his English on-screen capabilities are he's the one not that's, there at all. He's the one that's dubbed like heavily <laughs> to the point where i thought it was like a a nod to uh to a whole other genre of filmmaking uh I was like, are they doing this on purpose i'm like oh it's no. even worse than that kyle this is like this is like an old gps like this like is rumble before... in the bronx like I, this no is... <laughs> no 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 that's okay i'm talking i'm talking like like a, a garmin gps from before your phone could tell you where to go when you had to have a proprietary device dedicated to telling you what roads to take <laughs> colonel i don't believe we can attack from the air is is not possible <laughs> like everything is so stilted and like all the sound in the room drops out <laughs> like every time like he speaks. <laughs> yeah like, something too you have to keep in mind kyle is that like we've alluded to this but like they were making a video game simultaneous with this film so like their big impression was that they were going to make street fighter in the same graphic style as mortal Kombat. it was all going to be the motion capture and it was all going to be you know this super high-end essentially street fighter 3 which was the biggest sequel of all time in video games you know in that era and <laughs> i was gonna say this Final reintroduction hadn't started yet <laughs> uh well a different genre but like the fighting yeah. game was more accessible so it had a larger audience and at least in arcades and so having when since they were going to bring out this video game like sawato was one of the few new characters that was going to be introduced so, so wait he was going to be a character in the game. He's in the game. He's, he's in the in movie the g- game. Uh, okay. So he's in Street Fighter the movie the game. So he's not <laughs> in the first two Street Fighter games. No. He's no, in no, the no. third Street Fighter movie. Or he's in the Street Fighter movie, then he's in the Street Fighter third game. Street Fighter the movie the game. Then yeah. he's never spoken of again. Yes. <laughs> okay. Kyle's brain is exploding. <laughs> So, Street Fighter, the movie, the game, is not Street Fighter 3. It was originally supposed to be, but they realized that this was going to be such a disaster that they wisely kind of made it its own offshoot. And frankly, it may have stood a better chance if it had come out simultaneously with the movie. 
but because it came out six months after the fact, like the movie got so panned that they were just kind of like, we'll just put it out because it's done, but we don't want to actually attach like Street Fighter 3 to the titles. Do you own that, Trevor? Is that do you have that in your possession, or is it hard to find? I do not actually. It, I think it is actually a little bit pricey. Um, there's multiple iterations of it. There's the original arcade version, which has never been released anywhere, which is pretty fucking broken. Like it's it's kind of a flimsy. Like it, the engineering of it is not great. But then they made an entirely new version of it for home consoles, for like the PlayStation and the Sega Saturn. Oh. Um, which. I would like to try someday because I have heard that they basically tuned it to basically be Super Street Fighter 2 Turbo, which is a good game, um, but with the digitized graphics. Um, and Sawada has a playable character, so that's a perk. That's the, Now that is the only game where Sawada can be played, correct? The only game. I would highly recommend looking up YouTube videos of street fighter the movie the game just so you can see how comical it is to see all of these actors many of which who are very poor (laughs) acting let alone having to choreograph doing all sorts of fireball motions and kicks and street fighter the game the movie or street fighter the the movie movie, the the game game. okay (laughs) yeah van Van damme looks okay like he obviously he's limber he can do what they ask him to but then you have like Miguel Nunez, who I'm pretty sure they had to call him back or something, because I'm pretty sure he wanted to dip too. Um, Wes Studi took his shirt off, like he committed. <laughs> but yeah, some of these people they didn't they didn't have a clue, and apparently uh, the pronunciation of a lot of the special moves was just a clusterfuck. Like nobody could figure out how to say anything, um, which I think is funny because before we started recording. Um, Kyle, Kyle, and the rest of us—we all had a little conversation about uh, how how some of these names are supposed to be said, and um, really, there's not a great answer for any of it because there's there's the proper Japanese way, but then there's the way that an entire generation of people have been saying it, and I'm not about to tell them otherwise. <laughs> but um, yeah, Sawada is—he's uh, terrible. <laughs> like, like he is a charisma vacuum, and. Uh, Dude, they should have just dubbed him. Charisma like, vacuum. I, no, they they should have just gotten someone else to do his lines for him because it's so stilted. And I wasn't kidding. Like literally, all the sound in the room dips out every time he has lines, and everyone in the room like turns and like looks at him, and it's like it's like his audio comes from a different dimension. Like it's not just <laughs> ADR; it's super ADR, <laughs> and it's it's kind of embarrassing because, you know, I've. You know, I've grown up my whole life watching dub movies and stuff, but I haven't watched dub movies where they draw that fucking much attention to it, and they single him out as the only guy who sounds completely wrong compared to everyone else. Okay, did Balrog wear uh, athletic gear like a basketball uniform in the video games? It was a uh, blue on white, like Tyson towel, like with like torn sleeves and like a white. T-shirt oh, okay. Underneath. Okay, because it looks like he's wearing a ba- just a basketball shorts and a basketball jersey. <laughs> yeah, this looks like... It, it, I don't... You know, it was, a, it was an Australian-Japanese-American co-production. You know, something got lost in translation. <laughs> it's like, so he plays basketball, right? If they, did no- <laughs> if, if they did nothing else right, Kylie Minogue looks great in this. this... Kylie Minogue. Kylie Minogue. Um, speaking of which, we should probably get to her. So, Kylie Minogue uh, plays Cammie White. Uh, who's like 
has the most convoluted and obnoxious backstories in the games to the point that I am not going to fucking touch that with a 10 foot pole. Um, people who like Cammy know who they are. Um, I'm not one of them, mostly because I don't like playing against Cammy. She is an obnoxious character. Her moveset is ridiculous. She's always broken. She's always in every fucking game because, like I said, Cammy fans are a plenty and they know who they are. Um, in this movie, She's basically uh, Van Damme's sidekick. Uh, it's her. It's uh, the trio. Uh, her, T-Hawk, and, and uh, Guile. And she's kind of like the one who has lines and like occasionally does stuff. And uh, they make an attempt to have her do one of her cami moves. Um, the subtitles incorrectly uh, like labeled the move. Um, it's supposed to be, I think, press kick. Uh, but this, the subtitles when I was watching the movie, uh, it, it, it came out the rough kick. And I was like, okay, some, somebody didn't bother to properly subtitle the movie. That's okay. Um, but did you guys have anything to say about her, or did I cover it all? I think you got it. <laughs> yeah, I, I just have to reiterate. I, I think that the performance she gave was, like, way more effort than was necessary for that role. Yeah, so. she, did, she did an amazing job portraying, uh, portraying this character. I have a question, and it's Mortal Kombat and Street Fighter related. Uh, now that, I mean, Tekken has kind of come along, but these two, I feel like, are the, the first of the the arcade, like, fighting games. Uh, am I wrong in thinking that there's, like, character overlap a bit? Like, you kind of have, like, M. Bison's kind of like the Raiden. Is that, would that be correct? Or is he more of the Shang Tsung? More of the Shang Tsung. Um, just in terms of like his placement in the cast, not in terms of like character similarities, but he's the final boss of the game and whatnot. I mean, the, inevitably, there's going to be a lot of overlap when your entire franchise is based around rivalries, mm-hmm. where it, the entire cast of both of those franchises, like it's basically set up like to have uh, relationships, romantic or otherwise, and uh, you know, people with beef with each other. And, you know, Sub-Zero and Scorpion may as well be Ryu and Sagat and stuff like that, and so on and so forth. And, like, Dan, Dan Hibiki and Sagat. And, like, oh, he killed my dad, so that's why I'm in the tournament. And I I think, too, some of it is the play style for just gamers in general. So, like, when these games first came out, like I said, like, nobody knew how to play them. Because, like, there wasn't just a way to, like, broadcast, like, here's how you do all the moves. Like, some of the arcade cabinets would have, like, instructions on them, but... You know, like I said, it's it's kind of a weird experience, like pumping a quarter in and trying to read that while you're playing somebody who's breathing down your neck right next to you. But um, because of that, it's like you saw characters like Guile got really popular early on because his move set's the easiest to learn, and so a lot of people gravitated towards him because it's like, holy shit, I can throw these sonic boom fireball things at people, you know, and it's super easy motion. And then as people got more talented at the game, they started being able to do the more complex actions. That some of the other characters required, you know, being able to like do a whole 360 degree rotation, the directional pad in order to like do Zangief's moves, for instance. So like it, it was kind of neat when these games were first coming out, where it was like a matter of like you gravitated towards characters you knew you could do the special moves with. It's like some characters are much much easier to use, like Scorpion in Mortal Kombat versus, you know, Sonya Blade or whatever, like. Kyle has feelings about Scorpion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cowards. He's not a fan. He's not a fan. 
Maybe of the character, but not to play against. Yeah, no, he's he's badass. Uh, but yeah, so no. take take the rant that I applied to Cammy just now and apply it to Scorpion mm-hmm. on Kyle's behalf. Yeah. <laughs> but um, moving on from Kylie Minogue, um, one that I just would like to devote a few seconds to is uh, E Honda, uh, Peter Tuiasasopo. Um, I I know this guy from uh, basketball. <laughs> he played one of the big menacing players um, that had a cool joke played on him that was pretty fun but um i really liked him he was fun <laughs> he's, he's he's affable <laughs> he's in uh necessary roughness which is a movie you should probably consider for your sports uh month i think uh the guy from any given sundays in that as well i believe mm-hmm. he is as well yeah 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 maybe maybe that. I, i've actually been struggling to pick mine and you know we do have the super bowl coming next month so. mm-hmm football hit the hit that foosball um, but yeah I, I really liked him in this role um they kind of transmogrified the character into something that's not very close to the the game version because the the game version much like we'll i guess we'll get to ryu in a minute here um is supposed to be like a homegrown japanese sumo wrestler and uh he's that's basically his character <laughs> um in this one though because uh, probably because the fellow that they cast um Tuiasa Sopo he's Samoan they're like hmm he's Polynesian and there's no hiding that fact we may we may as well make him uh from Hawaii uh close enough I guess <laughs> but um I always thought that was neat especially because in 1994 I believe this was the age of Akebono I was just gonna say yeah that's uh, I'm about to blow your mind, Trevor. I didn't realize who he played. He played Chip. Uh, Zangief, the dude who played Zangief, played Chip in Batman Returns. He's Christopher Walken's son. Oh, fuck. Yeah. Holy shit. Ch- Dad. Go. Dad, go. <laughs> Save yourself, Dad. Dad, go. Man, I cannot believe He's that. a talented actor. He is incredible. <laughs> Actually, I was thinking to myself, he looks a little bit like Chris Evans if you like shaved him, like gave him the same haircut or something. But yeah, man, he's a talented actor. I don't Look at think, that. I don't think we realized how big he was from like the angle that he was shot at. Yeah, because they had it <laughs> under. Wow, that is nuts, nuts. Dad, go. <laughs> sorry, sorry, I derailed us. Uh, but yes, he is uh, a necessary. I'm, I'm glad you did. That that is a fun Easter egg. Holy wow. shit. That guy's that guy is the man. He's got range. <laughs> He's got range. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, back to E Honda. Um, I had mentioned uh, the '90s were kind of the age of Akebono, um, who, if you're not familiar, um, I believe was the first non-Japanese yokozuna um, in sumo wrestling, and he was, of course, from Hawaii. Represent. <laughs> so it may have been a nod to that, being as like. American audiences probably wouldn't give a shit, but you know Japanese audiences would be like, "Hey, yeah, we we got one of those." <laughs> it's like, and he's legit fucking good. Are <laughs> Jap- or is, is sumo wrestling is it supposed to be explicitly uh, Japanese or? I don't know if it was ever enforced, but it is their national sport. Okay, I think it's more in order to actually go through the training and all. It's just incredibly difficult to commit to um, if you're coming in from a foreign country. Okay. And subsequently, currently, I've heard that there's a ton of, I believe, Mongolian immigrants yes. who are yes. really into it now okay. because it's become easier to kind of come in and, and train. For, because you just have to put on so much weight, and it's a type of weight that's, like, so unique that it's not like 
any other sport it's like such a sustained just like constant eating and training and just it takes like decades well there's also the language and the cultural barrier where it's like you are in it you are not only in japanese culture you're like immersed in like an antiquated form of japanese culture that's totally removed from mainstream society it's almost like you know going back in time um but yeah there's a lot of i think like georgians and uh mongols for sure are like kind of kicking all sorts of ass and that actually makes sense because uh uh there's a strong history of wrestling culture in mongolia so it's like i guess they found their outlet where it's like you know maybe not collegiate wrestling but hey we got the frame for sumo let's head to japan (laughs) like why not fascinating i need to watch a documentary about it (laughs) you absolutely do sumo wrestling is amazing the ritualistic aspect of it is really is fascinating it's a lot of fun to watch Hmm. Um, but anyway yeah long story short uh e-honda is hawaiian in this movie i thought the performance was a lot of fun he has a lot of laugh moments uh he does get a hundred hand slap in there on zangief that made me laugh (laughs) (laughs) because it's kind of like done exclusively through editing like he isn't moving that fast it doesn't look especially painful but they just like take the same couple of hits and just like repeat them in the edit and it's it's funny and also like he and zangief there's a they're a scrap uh for me as a child gave me like one of my happiest moments in watching the movie because it was a tribute to godzilla and it made me laugh, and it still does, because the two of them, they're two big, two big dudes that are wrestling, and they're so fat they fall through the floor. <laughs> and then they're, like, literally wrestling. They're entangled and wrestling for the last half hour of the movie, <laughs> and neither of them looks anywhere near tired by the end. They're comic book characters. Like, they're literally pro wrestlers in this movie, because, like, my concept of pro wrestling has always been pro wrestlers are by default considered invincible (laughs) they can only be disabled for a few seconds at a time but in between that they're invincible (laughs) like nothing can ever kill them and these guys are that and we get that scene where uh, Sawada actually does get a little bit of a laugh where he gets to speak Japanese thankfully and uh, they like hack the security cameras of Shadowloo of the, the fortress that they're like invading and uh, we get a security cam footage of the same Bisonopolis uh, model that uh, Raul Julia was walking around earlier in the film. And uh, they actually play the Godzilla roars over Zangief and E-Honda falling on top of the model buildings. And I was like, yep, that's that's all like, you know, eight-year-old Trevor needed to you know get something out of the movie. <laughs> um, but anyway, moving on from E-Honda trying to think who we got left here so fei long who doesn't appear yeah that's worth noting so fei long is the only character of the 16 character cast um, that existed in the games up to this point that does not make an appearance in this film and there are some rumors suggesting that sawada was originally cast to be him i don't believe that was the case i think what happened was the cast was already crowded and i don't think the bruce lee estate would be super would be especially keen on the idea of having a Bruce Lee knockoff in the movie. I think especially one that doesn't really contribute anything to the story. As soon as I looked him up, I'm like, uh, Trevor, it's because he's Bruce Lee. And I don't yeah. think they're going to allow Bruce Lee. To look I mean, like as far as Bruce Lee knockoffs in fighting games go, he's one of the more blatant ones um, in that he just has the enter the dragon outfit and nothing else. And not only that, his backstory is he's an actor. <laughs> like, um, I think Forest Law actually in Tekken 
like by the time you get to Tekken 3 it's, it was getting dangerously close where it's like we have the technology to actually like kind of render the face to kind of look like him but in subsequent iterations they kind of distanced him like I think by the time you get to the fourth one they gave him a goatee to like be like okay it's not it's not full Bruce it's like close <laughs> but as far as Bruce Lee knockoffs and games go Fei Long is a little too close so I could see why they'd want to avoid that I heard though that they had Sawada actually dress up as him and do the he motion did. capture for the video game um, I don't know if he did the motion capture but he is in the background of one of the stages um, wearing the, the Bruce Lee black pants like it, it's it, I'm glad he's not here because he, he it's already a crowded cast we didn't need him but like I said I think that's the reason they decided to excise him from the script but um DJ I mentioned earlier, uh, Miguel Nunez, uh, <laughs> he has a long history of being in all sorts of movies, uh, Juana Man being probably the one the most people know him for, but um, I know him for, uh, I think it was, I forget which Friday the 13th it was, but those damn enchiladas, <laughs> that's I think his last line before he dies, Is he... and then uh, Return of the Living yeah. Dead. That's what I was yes. Return of the Living Dead. Yeah, uh, he's he's fun in this. He actually has good comedic timing. Um, I think he and John Leguizamo probably were in some of the same casting rooms because <laughs> <laughs> they have, you know, they probably contemporaries. They have, they both have good comedic timing. And Juana Man, isn't it Tommy Davidson that's uh, trying to bang him? Basically, he's got the hots for for him. Oh, I don't think I ever saw the movie front to back. Oh, I just I had fr- I had friends, and I think our uh, Matt, I think our neighbors across the street liked it or something. But it was one one of the many basketball movies of the age that um, I didn't see. I think I saw the Sixth Man before I saw that. <laughs> but, um, oh my god, I forgot about the Sixth Man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was wow. Bad. That happened. <laughs> Ghost basketball. <laughs> that was bad. <laughs> Um, but yeah, uh, long story short, uh, I actually don't... DJ is one of the one of the only characters in Street Fighter 2 I have very little knowledge on. Uh, I know a little something about almost everyone in the cast except him. This whole shtick in the games was that he's uh, from Jamaica, and he's a kickboxer, and uh, he has charge moves, and that, that's it. Um, I don't even know if he was poised... if he was positioned as a, a heel or a face in the games... But in this, he's a he's a he's the tech guy. He's essentially oh, funny connection. Die Hard, yep. Theo. He's That's Theo. Exactly. Yeah, he's Theo from Die Hard in this. <laughs> um, and funny enough, like I said, he's in the game. He's in the home version of the game, not the arcade version. But he, Juana Man, showed up and <laughs> he did his mocap. Um, but um, so like probably the the big one. I, I think uh, Ryu is probably the big one that we haven't talked about, but um, right before we get to him, like on the same note, Vega. Uh, Vega, Matt, correct me if I'm wrong, but I seem to remember Vega was all over the marketing for this movie. Um, yeah, I, I can't recall. I, I remember that he, he was pretty prominent, I think, in some of the posters. But, yeah, posters um, mostly. Not yeah. the commercials, no. But I remember like posters and promotional art, and um, also that that god awful uh, Legend of Chun Li movie. He was all over that. That was like one of the Black Eyed Peas guys. <laughs> but Vega was an interesting character in this movie because he he's almost like a Boba Fett, where it's like he's purely just design more so than character. And it's he has the cool mask. He's got the cool claw. He's got the cool 
snake tattoo all around him. From an aesthetic standpoint, he's probably the most perfect rendition that they got, aside from the hair color. In the games, he's usually blonde. Um, and also, he's a little bit of a sadist, which, I mean, he, he does tell Ryu he's going to kill him, which I guess points to that. But uh, also similar to Boba Fett, he has two or three lines in the whole movie, and I think they're all 80-yard. But I liked this guy. <laughs> like, I kind of liked him. But he doesn't have much to work with but in terms of physicality i liked his 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 uh matador pose in the ring and his stupid shit-eating grin and i like that he was able to communicate with his face like uh how vain he is like how he has all the female fans in the crowd in the cage match when we're introduced to him and then the one like favors ryu and he gives that like oh, like that hurt <laughs> expression <laughs> it's like it's all communicated with his face but i, I thought he did it pretty well I, I agree. The thing that pissed me off, actually, in that sequence is the fact that the build-up and the set design was actually almost perfect. Yeah. And then it just gets interrupted by Guile barging through the freaking wall with a tank. It's like, <laughs> thanks. It's like, this is a movie about a fighting tournament. You need to actually have fights. Like, not gun battles, but over and over and over you get teased with it's like, this is a perfect setting for a one-on-one -on -one fight. And it didn't, they didn't take advantage. <laughs> you are all under arrest. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a huge problem with the movie in general, is that, like I said, um, very few of the people involved in this production, at least from a casting standpoint, knew how to handle themselves like on screen or otherwise. And you have poor Benny, poor Benny Urquidez, trying to wrangle all these fucking cats. <laughs> like, There's no way they could have figured it out. And even the director admitted that uh, Ken and Ryu's fight scenes were actually shot in sequence, and he remarked several times on the commentary that it's like, you know, I think they got better towards the end. <laughs> like, it's like, no shit! It's because they've never done it before, and they're learning as they go. Um, but yeah, it was kind of... It creates a weird rhythm, where in terms of fight action and stuff, it's really all relegated to like the final minutes of the movie, and even then, we're constantly cutting back and forth between all of it, Sometimes, like, on the hit, we're like, there's a beat where Chun-Li, um, no, Guile is about to throw a kick at M. Bison, and we cut to Chun-Li throwing a kick at someone else in the locker room, and we keep doing shit like that, where it's like, clearly what we shot wasn't good, so we're trying to find ways to dress it up by making things jumpy and kind of off the wall, and giving it some energy. I will say this much, though, um, the sound effects they chose for the hits are fucking vicious! <laughs> like, for shitty fight choreography in a goofy movie, for some reason the hits in this movie are really juicy. <laughs> it's like, oh my god, I don't know, is West Studio okay? <laughs> like, he sounds like he got his face caved in. Uh, last thing I want to say about him is that I did like that even though he has very little to offer in terms of characterization, they did actually try to make his moves kind of match that of the game a little bit. Like, he does he does a lot of tumbling. He does a lot of forward rolls with the claw, of course. Um, he does react accordingly when he gets struck in the face and stuff. Um, but yeah, that, that introduction of him was really disappointing. And I want to say this is just me stretching. Like, I don't actually have confirmation on this. But when we're introduced to him, he's in the cage... Uh, in Sagat's lair with someone else with some anonymous fighter with a knife yeah and we get a couple of shots of them walking around like stalking each other and then the guy falls down when Ken and Ryu show up but we didn't actually see any blows landed we didn't see any fight um I don't think that's what all that was shot 
I'm pretty sure there was an actual showcase of him doing stuff. And I mean, th this guy is probably the most physically fit of anyone in the cast. And he took it upon himself to do his own backflip on screen. He's clearly fairly capable, but <clears throat> this is where things like sensors uh, become apparent. Where, you know, this was in, produced in an age where video games were starting to be demonized and considered like the source of like all the problems with the children's and stuff. So I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, even with the middling fight choreography, they probably still had to make cuts in addition to working with shit, like shit footage. So it's like, ooh, you're really uh, having to deal with a lot of handcuffs in that situation. But anyway, I thought Vega was done fairly well. Although, like I said, it's very odd that we spend the entire movie building up a fight between him and Ryu. Um, so I guess we should probably close things with talking about Ken and Ryu. <laughs> so, um, Damien Choppa. Uh, I want to say he's one of the worst elements of the cast, and bar none, probably the worst fighter in the cast. <laughs> Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. Uh, he, has a, he has a striking resemblance to the actor who played uh, uh, Johnny Cage. Did I say that right? Yeah, Johnny Cage. In oh, Mortal Lyndon Ashby? Yeah, Lyndon Ashby. Like, it's the same dude. Chinless, small head, white dude with blonde hair. The only difference is Lyndon Ashby doesn't have a speech impediment. Yeah. <laughs> Damien Chapa has those, like, flappy lips where you can tell he's, he's kind of, like, trying to get his words past his lips. Go, go put a gun to her head. Ryu, we need to get out of here. <laughs> it's like, he, he has a little trouble enunciating, as my dad would tell me. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's terrible. <laughs> Yeah, he's bad. He's really fucking bad. Um, and it's especially, it's doubly so because Ken is probably one of the most beloved characters in the franchise. Yeah. He's probably my go-to in terms of player characters, like characters I use in all the games because he's fucking Ken Masters and he's the shit. And in the animated movie, he lives in Seattle. <laughs> I feel like in Street Fighter, there's too many Red Rangers. Like, there's you've got <laughs> Ken, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's Ken, Ryu, and Guile. Yeah. I'm like, you've got three uh, hunky white dudes to play as. I'm like, that's, that's too many to choose from. Which one do I want to be? <laughs> well, I, th I think that's an excellent point that kind of summarizes, like, so many of the issues that, like, I personally have with it is that, like, there were characters like that that were clearly designed by a Japanese company to market to Americans. And now we're seeing an interpretation that's focusing on these characters are, are just Red Rangers, just generic, like, alpha, like, whatevers that were only designed just to appeal to a small sect of the market and have nothing to do with backstory and have nothing to do with anything else. And that's where there's so many like this movie just like has no weight because you're focusing on these guys. That it's like, there's no need for a backstory to guile. He's in the military. Yeah. That's all you need to know. Like he's fighting a dictator. Like he doesn't, we don't need to know about Charlie, his buddy who's lost. We don't need to like know about his training to learn how to do a flash kick. None of that. Why would you, tell, that, why would you tell the guy who stole your friend that he has your friend as a hostage? He gave him away in the first, like, ten minutes. He's like, he wouldn't have gotten mutated if he had just said, like... I, actually, I was like, it took me a second. I'm like, what the hell just happened? I'm like, did he just... Did he just say his friend that's in the room? And so I realized, like, oh, he's in the room with him. I'm like, oh, wh why'd you do that? <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, he probably shouldn't have called out his name. Yeah. 
<laughs> you could have just called him, hey, buddy, I'm coming for you. <laughs> well, even then, don't tell him that you have a your friend who's a hostage. Like, he can just start shooting people until he gets to, you know, your guy. Jeez. Yeah, yeah, that was a little bit of a party foul. It's <laughs> not only Guile's part. You're not backstage with fucking, uh, it's, it's like wrestling. That's the kind of thing. It felt like like wrestling, like the 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 smack talk, like you got Booker T back there with the guy, like <laughs> I'm coming for you, man. Like, I don't, I, did you not? Well, it, am, I, am I crazy? Did, does it not feel like WWF? No, that that was ex- that was exactly what it was. He he cut a promo on M Bison on national television. Like it's later revealed that it was done intentionally to draw him out so they could find him. But yeah, he he totally just like snagged the mic from Mean Gene, aka Chun Li. <laughs> like, Let me tell you something, brother. <laughs> I do I do love how mad he like how like like how Raul Julia like when he when he's when he uh, Van Dam gives him like the flex, and he just kind of like perks up just a little bit. Like you can just see him just stiffen just a little bit. And he's like that motherfucker. He's like, if I was a few years younger and didn't have cancer, <laughs> I, I would whip your fucking ass. <laughs> or if I had but a yeah. rape, if I had a rapier or an epi or something. Do you know how to sword fight, Van Damme? Under that would be a more even fight. <laughs> or, a, or a gondola or something. If you had an oar. <laughs> but I think the uh, Red Ranger comparison is actually perfect because, like, if you were actually to do a Ken Masters the way he should be portrayed in like the game, it would be more the equivalent of like the White Ranger or Green Ranger, however you interpret. But more like the White, where it's like this is like he's he's on par with Ryu or Ryu, but. He's got his own personality and priorities, and Ryu's just a bit more dedicated to the warrior craft of being living in solitude and training endlessly, whereas Ken is more focused on, like, hey, I'm also going to have a, a life outside of this training, but I'm still going to pace you as we go. Like, So it, it, you basically took this character that's beloved by so many who have loved this series because he is this like powerful contemporary and you turn him into the greasy, like, swindler who's, like, basically drug our beloved protagonist, Ryu, into the arms trade, illegal arms trade in Southeast Asia. It's, like, it's a very, very weird, like, interpretation of these characters. It's a very bad look for both of them. Uh, because in the in the games, they're, they're both supposed to be trained by uh, under the same tutelage. Um, they're supposed to be, like, lifelong companions and... They, they have similar fighting styles, but, like, a huge difference between the two of them is, like, Ken is more external and Ryu is more internal. Where um, There's actually a really cool, uh, like, web series called uh, Street, si- uh, Street Fighter Assassin's Fist. It's uh, directed by Joey Ansa, who's a, a British fight coordinator who has been in stuff you guys have seen. I'll just say that much. Um, anyway, uh, the, the fella that plays uh, Bruce Lee in... Um, once upon a time in Hollywood uh, portrays Ryu in that. Um, and they do a fun role reversal with the characters there where they, they go through Ryu's kind of, I hate to say it, but like kind of tired um, story arc of dealing with the dark Hado, like basically the dark side of the force. It's so hackneyed and tired. I'm, I'm so tired of that, but they do a fun role reversal where like Ken is initially portrayed as like the impatient and like sloppier of the two of them. But then they do a reversal where it's like, 
oh, Ken became more centered and now Ryu's like grappling with his inner demons and now Ken has to like kind of pull him out of it because he, they kind of leapfrog each other from time to time in terms of who's ahead of the other in personal development. But in this, they're fucking gun runners. <laughs> and uh, yeah, they're both like, they're kind of like a, a comedy duo of sorts that uh, they do one of the most annoying things you could possibly do with fight choreography where they're constantly doubling each other. Where, like, they'll double punch someone, or they'll do, a, like, a, a roll and, like, do a judo throw on some way back-to-back. It's like, oh, my God, this is so fucking hackneyed and stupid. Um, but it's it's made even worse by the fact that neither of them is especially good when it comes to the on-screen martial arts. Damien Chapa, I've already used the phrase, but charisma vacuum. Uh, the only thing I've seen him in was Under Siege, where all he does is uh, lust after the uh, the pinup gal and uh fail at shooting bad guys while steven seagal does everything <laughs> um and by the way he can't say ryu's name raul julia <laughs> credit to him he's the only person in the movie i think that says ryu everyone else says ryu <laughs> but uh moving on from ken who like just makes me angry thinking about because he's so bad <laughs> and ken is such a good character and they made no attempt to make him interesting like it, the character's placement in the movie is very frustrating because they're constantly being kind of like pulled around by other organizations. Like they get exploited by both Guile and Chun-Li at different points in the film such that they have very little agency to the point that it's like you almost kind of agree with Ken by then where it's like, fuck everyone. <laughs> just, I don't even know what we're doing anymore. But you're kind of stuck with them and like every time I look at them, it's like I, I don't see Ken and Ryu. I just see two schlubs that that walked in from Double Dragon, a far inferior film. <laughs> Dude, you, um, you should look at the uh, Damien Chapa's uh, filmography. I don't even know if these are movies. He's been consistently working, like for years. But these are not like <laughs> these aren't even Seagull movies. Like these are. Actually, that would be really cool, Kyle. Like, what if he started working with Seagal again? Seagal, Seagal would be a step up. Like, that that would actually be a film. I don't think these are films, honestly. I mean, all Damien Chapa has to do is get his Russian citizenship, and then he can go work with Seagal again. <laughs> I could be a, it can have a reunion. I can't even look. Like, I I for sure can't watch the movies, but I don't even know if I could read the description on these things. Like, they look bad. <laughs> Take oh, a gander later. So, so does he have some, like, Michael Madsen numbers? Is he posting those? Yes, yes. He's he's okay. he's got like Ma- Michael Madsen numbers, but like worse <laughs> movies than Michael Madsen. Ouch! Ouch! That hurts. Oh. Uh, so, so I guess the last piece of this puzzle here is Byron Mann as Ryu, Ryu Hoshi. They gave him a last name, which is baffling. Like Ryu has always been Ryu in my mind, but in this movie they say his name, his last name, a couple times out loud. And it's such a Okay, I guess I guess everybody needs a first and last in this one. But um Matt, what did you think of Ryu in this movie? <laughs> I was devastated. I hated everything about him. Like, That's why I picked you. <laughs> no, I, I mean because like for starters it was like you know, being like a hoppa kid on the playground all excited for like the biggest video game of all time at that era coming out and knowing that there's a character that like is supposed to represent you on film coming out Hey, oh, it's Ryu. This is going to be the Japanese good guy. We have every other nation essentially represented in this movie. And what do we get? 
a Chinese guy. <laughs> and not only is it a Chinese guy. Well, not only is it a Chinese guy, but the most. No, no, no. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, it, Matt, if this makes you feel any better, American audiences at the time probably didn't know any better. I know they didn't know, and that's why it was even more infuriating. Because when you're sitting at home, like Trevor said, we rented this movie. So, like, I had already heard the chatter on the playground from all the kids who saw it in the theater. And I remember what the biggest thing I was focused on is, like, well, what do the fireballs look like? That's such a significant part of, like, Street Fighter is, like, it's two characters throwing fireballs at each other across the screen. And they're like, I don't know. It's like there's, like, a spark or something. Most disappointing sequence in this entire fucking movie is the part when all of a sudden Ryu just busts out with this motion that's supposed to be a fireball, but there's nothing. It's just, it's just like a weird, dump, like punch with your wrists. I think they grounded that, like, it. Knocked. They grounded it too much in reality. Like Mortal Kombat is somewhat grounded in reality, but we we get into a little bit of a fan, like a little bit of Outworld. Like there's a little bit there. This, aside from Blanca. Which I'm not even positive was even like superhuman. I'm like, I think he just lied to you, man. I don't think he was actually gonna be. I don't think he was actually gonna do that. I think he's gonna die soon. Uh, other than what they did to Blanca, like this is pretty much all realistic. Like, there's no real, like, there's no real like uh, video gameness to it. Like, it, it doesn't seem fake. exactly. But that that's like a huge misfire. Yeah. It's like, what are you thinking? Like, you turned it into a just this, if you remove the title Street Fighter and you just called this, like, you know, Action Squad, yeah, it would just be like a shit Van Damme movie. Yeah. Like, nothing more. Like, it doesn't, the only reason that we associate it with Street Fighter is because they, you know, put a little effort to put some costumes in and, you know, they gave them all the names. Otherwise, it's just a generic action flick. Well, it, this threw me off, too, because I remember seeing the the cover for Street Fighter. I'm like, okay, so I recognize Raul Julia. I, I recognize him Bison. Like, I know who that is. But I'm like, who the fuck is Van Damme supposed to be? And I'm like, is he supposed to be? Like, he, his hair, I'm like, he doesn't look like either one of the blonde dudes. I'm like, who is he supposed to be? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, uh, I mean, the the key component of Guile's design, of course, in the games is that fucking hairdo. <laughs> like, that, I can understand why they wouldn't put it in the movie, but like I said, it's kind of a flimsy character to begin with, and that's the one thing that people would be expecting, you know, anybody who has familiarity with the games. And yeah, anybody who's ever played the games, like, even without playing the games, if you've been in the same room as a game of Street Fighter, I guarantee you it sounds like, it's just people shouting the names of the moves that they're doing and most of those moves involve like flashy projectiles and things of that nature Um, and mortal Kombat, you know they had the luxury of maybe seeing this movie come and go and recognize that's like huh you know like scorpion throws a spear maybe we should have a shitty reptilian cgi spear come out of his hand just because that's what people were expecting (laughs) it's worth mentioning too that Mortal Kombat, the game, came out in response to this. Yes. And they intentionally made it so every character has a projectile, uh, which isn't the case in Street Fighter, which tells you the significance of the special moves. Yeah. Two things. One, I didn't know that Hadouken was from Street Fighter. I thought it was from Dragon Ball Z. Uh, two, uh, how, like, do you think anybody when, in Mortal Kombat, when Scorpion's little mouth hand opens and it's a little beak thing... Everybody's like, what the fuck is that? Like, I thought there was a chain or something at the end of it. It's a beak? 
Well, people wait. were pissed when <laughs> when I saw it in the theater, but at the same time, it was like it was still cooler than all we got was Street Fighter. So, like, it was. I mean, any sort of computer graphics in that time were kind of significant, especially when it's a prolonged sequence where, like, you know, that that's a pretty lengthy CGI experience for that era. So yeah, just don't look at Reptile. Just that that's the, yeah that just really drags it down. R- Reptile's pretty rough. Sub Zero yeah. was done pretty well, except his uh, the way he's axed, way, way he gets axed is kind of like. Okay, like I guess Sub Zero's incompetent. <laughs> <laughs> He's an incompetent ninja. <laughs> Nobody's perfect. <laughs> well said. Um, yeah, you you couldn't see it, but just off screen, you know, probably just next to those those twins, they're constantly going Goro, Goro. <laughs> There's some other guy puking his guts out when the yeah. scorpion's palm uh, thing opened up. Just uh, <laughs> the smell. Oh, the smell. <laughs> just, uh, <laughs> just gagging in the corner. <laughs> no way. Told me he's gonna do that. <laughs> oh God. You're going to need a stronger stomach than that. But yeah, from a performance standpoint, Byron Mann is like he's okay. Like his line deliveries are fine. He's not wooden. Like he does kind of play a stoic character at times, but most of the time he's just kind of like he's a pawn in the script so you don't really rally behind him at all and when if not for the fact that he's playing a character named Ryu like his placement in the film at the end where we're cutting back and forth between Van Damme and Raul Julia throwing down and the four other guys in the basement tussling if not for that character being named Ryu and that character being named Ken it would have no dramatic weight behind it whatsoever because you just never really care very much about Ryu and Ken in this movie. And, yeah, from a physical standpoint, like, Byron Mann obviously hit the gym. Um, He doesn't move much better than anyone else in the cast. Um, I will say that the Ki in that fight with Vega, they're kind of, like, just screaming at each other to the point it gets a little unnerving. It's like, calm down, guys. Jesus. It's, It's almost like watching the Raid films where it's just like, okay, the vocalizations. You guys can, like, tone it down a bit. Like, there is a soundtrack as well. We don't need just... Like, we don't need all of that all the time. But, yeah, the the fireball... Actually, my my childhood experience of this film, that actually was the most concrete memory I pulled from this. Even more so than the Godzilla-inspired sequence. Was Ryu putting his hands together, doing the Hadoken motion, and when he makes contact with Vega's chest, it's not even a special effect. It's just like a single frame of white is slotted into the edit, maybe even by accident. (laughs) Although there is like a shimmer noise that plays over it. And then Vega falls down and gets right the fuck back up. So it's not even given like dramatic weight. Like it's not even the finishing blow. It's it was one of those things where as a child I'm watching that and I'm, like like Matt had said on the playground it's like I guess it was kind of a fireball. <laughs> I mean like and the com- the comparison I made before we started recording was Godzilla 1998 where there's that moment where he's roaring at the taxi cab in the finale of the movie. And a whole bunch of cars get blown up by his roar, and they all start exploding, and it causes a chain reaction. And it's supposed to, I guess, be a loose interpretation of Godzilla breathing fire? Except for the Godzilla in that movie is literally a radioactive marine iguana, which are vegetarians, by the way, so I don't even really... (laughs) But anyway, the idea is it's like 
this is them trying to appease the the masses, like the fans of the franchise and whatnot, and just utterly failing. <laughs> because all you had to do was have that be a fireball, or like put Vega on a wire rig and have him like get blown through a fucking wall or something. All you needed was just a little tinge of blue, like a little blue something or other come out of his hands, and they couldn't even fucking do that. But then again, I think this was a $35 million movie. Um, maybe they couldn't afford it. <laughs> I know a lot of styrofoam was used in the production design. But, uh, but yeah, uh, Ryu and Ken are both like kind of a huge disappointment, especially, obviously, for my brother and I. Um, and the, the shorter you can is even worse than the Hadouken, to be honest. Yeah, it, that's embarrassing. <laughs> he, 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 Kyle, like, you know when you, like, watch somebody, like, turn around in a circle and you can tell that, like, they completely lost their, their equilibrium or they just don't know where they are? Mm-hmm. Like, it looked like that. It looked like you spun him in an office chair and he's like, has that moment of panic where he's like, oh, where am I? <laughs> it looked like he stuck his arm straight up, spun around, and didn't know where to put his head. Just disgusting and i hate to say it but i think that was supposed to be the catalyst for the scar on sagat's chest at the end there um but yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so i'm about tapped out here with street fighter we've probably talked a lot more than i had anticipated honestly um so closing thoughts anything yeah i want to know kyle's opinion on van damme's speech he gives before the invasion oh, on a yeah. tier where like the independence day speech is obviously like number one so on the hierarchy of great speeches where do you think this one lands well for one it's the least amount of effort he gives throughout the entire film is the most important part <laughs> where he gives the speech he's just like all right well i guess we're not gonna go do this uh like it was the weirdest thing but the the troops are like fuck yes dude like we're gonna get after it man yeah it it was it was kind of funny uh as far as speeches go i mean it's up there with uh with the greats really it really is (laughs) (laughs) i love the reason i ask because you watch any given sunday immediately after this which has one of the greatest speeches of all time yes so it's like it's a movie you realize that this is supposed to have the same emotional impact any given sunday has a speech in it that on the right day will get you like fuck just almost it'll get like a man tear just like right there and you'll you'll get motivated about something like cleaning the bathroom, but this yeah, <laughs> this is just okay, guys. I guess we're not gonna go do this, but I think we're gonna go do this. Fuck yeah! <laughs> also, his name is on the boat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why does he have his name on the boat? On his stealth boat. <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, I was paying attention. I'm like, this is a motor. Like, this is just a little tiny motor boat with like styrofoam or cardboard on the side of it. I wanted to see. Like, don't show it taking off. Don't show. It t- they're gonna show it taking off. They stole that boat from a local Thai fisherman and didn't tell him. <laughs> oh, <anyone. laughs> just painted it black. So I think that uh, I think uh, what's his face. Um, Coppola, I think he screwed this production because uh, he filmed, you know, how he filmed uh, Apocalypse Now in Southeast Asia and like in Thailand, Cambodia, right in that area. Well, apparently they were supposed to film uh, like a the in fight. This was supposed to be in the air. It was supposed to be an air fight, and the the Thai government were like, no, 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 no. We're not going to have you guys doing that. It's gonna you have to do something else. So they had to do like an amphibious fight. I'm like, I think you can blame Coppola for that. I'm sure he did something wrong. 
<laughs> More than likely, yeah. Yeah, I, I could see that being the case, but... Um, <laughs> that, no, that, that, that boat actually is significant, though, because that's clearly where a big chunk of budget went to for some reason to do the bullshit stealth effect, and it was 100% to sell a stupid toy that they thought would be a spinoff of this movie. And I'm pretty sure it came out under the G.I. Joe line. Oh, um, absolutely, yeah. It I, was hyper-colored and, you know, not gray and boring, but I guarantee you there was a toy that had Lieutenant Guile or, or Colonel Guile on his name on the side and everything, so... Yeah, and I think that's actually a really important thing to keep in mind about this movie is that, like, regardless of how people think of it today, at the time, what what Matt had said earlier um, about about the game situation with Capcom, um, if this movie had been massively successful internationally, I, I mean, it was it was successful, but like, if this was a, a smash hit and all the merchandising pulled through, Street Fighter Three would have been based off of this movie. Like, we would have gotten Street Fighter 3 several years earlier than we eventually would, and it would have been based on the character interpretations based on this movie, um, which tells you how, how much confidence Capcom had in the production, or how, my, how, my, how, much they're, how many chips they're willing to put into it, um, which is kind of nuts when you think about it, that you'd restructure an entire IP um, on one movie. Um, at a very pivotal point in time, because Street Fighter Alpha was in development when this was coming out. Um, but <laughs> that, that, that speech, I, I just love what, what Kyle was saying about how kind of like loose it is, where it's it's not really a motivational speech. It's just kind of like, <laughs> it's like I'm going to get in my boat, and I'm going to kick that son of a bitch in the ass. <laughs> going to kick Bison in the ass <laughs> and everybody's like i don't know what he said but yeah <laughs> it's, it's like Patton giving a giving a speech I'm like yeah. let's do this man I, I love the reaction of the guys that's that's the best part oh yeah no and the the music it needs to be said is done by graham Ravel, and and the military march kind of kicks in there and it really works but it's just like the lack of, lackadaisical approach he has to it. like, i'm going up river <laughs> to, to find colonel kurtz <laughs> yeah Sent off the beach, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, for me, like, uh, we didn't talk about it at all, but it needs to be said the production design for this movie is kind of neat. Um, the the theming is is it's really obvious, but it works. Where it's like, oh, blue is good, red is bad. <laughs> and <laughs> was like, it the same oh. guy who worked on the set of the Legends of the Hidden Temple too? Like that that the the fault the the end scene basically. I mean, yeah, it does look a little bit like Olmec, um, the the aggro crag, as I called it earlier. Oh, it's the same show. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and not only that, um, the I wouldn't be surprised if the Australian folks that worked on Ultraman in the '90s maybe they got pulled over to design some styrofoam sets for this movie. There's certainly a lot of styrofoam boulders put to good use in this movie. Um, director said a lot of people were stealing them, along with uh, another fun element of the production design um, that. I think is worth pointing out is the branding it's actually really kind of cute where bison puts his brand on everything the the skull with the wings yeah like if you if you put it under a magnifying glass it's fucking everywhere even the even the mutagen bags that they they hook up to Blanca say like bison labs and uh the chair the really uncomfortable chair that dalsim has has the the back of it is designed to look like the skull with the wings and um the drink mixers that uh bison has in his uh 
Austin Powers lounge. Mm-hmm. It's same emblem. It's like it's pretty cool. Actually. Dude, th- at one point, I'm like, this feels like an Austin Powers movie. Like it, it really did. <laughs> it, like the lighting, yeah. the sets. Like, this feels like Austin Powers. Okay, so question: When you watch this as a kid, and he's just like, "I want twenty billion dollars," and you're just like, "Oh my gosh, dude, you're never gonna get that kind of money." I was watching this uh, the other or yesterday, and I'm like, "Yeah, I think you can get that money." <laughs> that's <laughs> totally like, reasonable. reasonable. That's pretty reasonable. <laughs> Between like. Three guys, that's totally doable. Yeah, you can click the pen, just be like, where do I sign? You can get that from three you can get that from three dudes in America and they won't even break a sweat. So yeah, that's <laughs> totally possible. Yeah, no, times have certainly changed. But um yeah, I mean the mo- the whole production design of the movie has like that old James Bond vibe to it. And I guess uh, like the design of the sets wall cheap like you can tell they're fucking cheap like you can tell that some love and care was put into it and they do a thing that um i talked about a lot on the uh the gamera episode um where there's a lot of t- televisions positioned throughout the entire movie that are just like playing the news and a lot of it is chun Li doing on-site reporting and stuff but it adds a lot of life and depth to a, a movie that doesn't necessarily warrant it but it's kind of neat you know just seeing it seeing it and like having it feel like a very lived in world and uh even the opening credits of the movie are like very ably executed from an editing standpoint like the opening five minutes it's an exposition dump but it's a very efficient one where we get the entire situation laid out to us to the point that you don't have to have any familiarity with the games to have like an absolute understanding of who's who and what's what um so i'm just trying to give some like unabashed praise for the film because i do feel it deserves some um but it i think it's a very curious film in the sense that like matt had said it is very much like a generic action film but it can't exist as a generic action film without the foundation of these familiar characters so it's like somewhere in between where it it is absolutely not a street fighter movie and it's absolutely not a straightforward action movie and somewhere it meets in the middle and it, it just kind of is <laughs> it's, it's, it doesn't succeed at either it, but it, it's just coasting by <laughs> yeah it's just um, a goofy kids movie I really enjoyed it I had a lot of fun with it uh, it's a little bit long I think they could have shaved a good 20 minutes out of it but I still had fun watching it yeah, I, I wish the punch ratio was higher. Even if it was bad punching, I would have like I have. I'm a stickler when it comes to my fighting in movies. I like when a fight scene is allowed to breathe, like when it's when it's time for Guile and M. Bison when they are standing opposite each other on a fucking catwalk and they tell every they tell their goons to clear out. That's when the movie has to stop for five minutes or three minutes at the very, at least three minutes and yeah three minutes. <laughs> Kyle, Kyle just said, you know, th- three, three minutes, man. It, the guy has cancer. <laughs> three minutes, at the very least, you need to give me a few minutes of just unbroken sorting the beef, like squash, quash the beef. <laughs> that, that needs to be your objective in the edit for the next few minutes. But no, we're jumping around. We need, we have all these characters we have to juggle. That some of them I care about, some of them I don't, and. They're all hitting each other, and it's all cross-cut in such a fashion that I can barely tell who's doing what. <laughs> but anyway, uh, anything else, guys? No, that's more than I care to ever discuss this <laughs> film ever again. Okay. So. Well, you never have to watch it again, and I really appreciate you 
taking one for the team and <laughs> and watching Street Fighter with us, even though I I had no idea you hated it that much. <laughs> so that being yeah. said, uh, yeah, thanks Matt for for joining us. Yeah. You're always welcome on the show. So if you ever have an idea of anything you want to talk about on the show, like any movies that come to mind, just let me know. Uh, I was going to say thanks as always for having me. I'm excited to see what sports picks you make, and uh, Kyle, I'm looking forward to you seeing better Van Damme movies. <laughs> I figured we, yeah, we, that has to happen. We were gonna do eventually. We're gonna have to cover the four horsemen of the '80s action apocalypse. Uh, so I figured that's gonna be Arnold, Seagal, Van Damme, and uh, the Italian guy, uh, Stallone. <laughs> <laughs> okay, way to slap me in the nuts with that one. <laughs> okay, well that being said, I guess that wraps up uh, Street Fighter. 1994 directed by Stephen E. D'Souza um, but if you would like to catch up on any of our other Catching Up on Cinema content uh, you can find all of that collected on our website at catchinguponcinema.com uh, you can also reach out to us on the social medias uh, on the Instagram at catchinguponcinema as well as the Twitter at catchingcinema and uh, you can find the podcast uh, on pretty much any hosting platform you can imagine so google us um, that being said, uh, thanks so much for joining us uh, in this week's installment of Video Game Movie Month, and uh, tune in next week for more video game adaptations. Yeah. We'll catch you next time. Google it. <laughs> <laughs>